Hello everyone and welcome to 1v1 with Boss Rush Games. I'm your host, Celeste Roberts. Today I have the pleasure of interviewing David Geisler, founder of 6-5 Media, which is home to podcasts like Another Zelda Podcast, Bruthers in Law, Studio Domancet, and a lot more. It keeps growing. Um, hello, Celeste. Thank you for having me on the show. It, it, it does keep growing, and that, that is a bit the point, and it's an interesting journey. We're trying to go slow so we don't bite off more than we can chew, but um, but it's a really, it's a fantastic journey, and thank you so much, because Boss Rush, I mean, has had a, a, quite a journey in the last year or two as well. They've been growing quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I love being a part of another Zelda podcast to get my Zelda fix, and then I do these interviews with Boss Rush Games. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I was so pleased when I saw that you were uh, starting starting up this, I don't know, this show, this experiment, <laughs> this uh, this whatever it is. And I'm absolutely pleased to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll give you a, a little secret. Well, it's not really a secret. They actually started this series, but I appreciate it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you for making well, you me feel special. <laughs> You know what it was? I think it's, I think, because we work together on AZP all the time. I think maybe, f forgive me, Boss Rush, but I, it probably hit my radar once you started um, doing some of these interviews. And that's probably when I, it came to my realization. But, but, but nevertheless, I'm very excited that you're able to do this. I love doing them. And I've known you for, gosh, is it three years now? Years and years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, also, for the record, it's a little strange talking to you right now on the webcam and having it not be another Zelda podcast meeting. We're, we're, uh, I'm, I'm so, I'm equally relaxed and nervous to be in your hands tonight. <gasps> That's a little bit less stress for you, right? I think so. I think so. Well, why don't you tell listeners about you? I'm sure a lot of people listening listen to the podcast with Six Five Media. What, what are some of your hobbies, your interests? Oh, okay. So the David Geisler stuff is um, hobbies. I mean, the easy ones are, I absolutely love to mountain bike and stuff like that. And when I can't mountain bike, I still ride my mountain bike here in the city. I live in Chicago and um, I'm very lucky to only live two blocks away from Lakeshore Drive over here in Edgewater. And so I can usually take my bike out and at least go up and down Lakeshore. And there's the Honestly, there's some pretty impressive bike trails in Chicago, which I didn't know really existed here until I moved here. I moved here from Milwaukee. When I started another Zelda podcast, I was living in Milwaukee, and they have great biking there. A lot of like kind of unofficial mountain bike trails along the rivers and stuff. There's a lot of rivers in Milwaukee, um, natural edge rivers, so it's like forest for 30, 40 feet. But uh, I've been really pleased with the biking here in Chicago as well. Other hobbies? Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I pick around at a guitar. I enjoy that very much. And um, uh, let's see, maybe some interests. I'm I'm kind of a I'm a I'm a roller coaster aficionado. I don't know if I've ever talked about that. I absolutely no. I like. Oh my gosh, Celeste! There are a solid like ten YouTube channels that I subscribe to to study which roller coasters are coming out, what year, and in which uh, which parks are. I <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to talk about this. Um, certainly because of like the COVID stuff, we haven't been able to go to any of these things. But I'm a real. Um, a real, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of a, a, I don't want to say behind the scenes fan, but I don't actually go to theme parks that much, but I'm a massive theme park fan. So I love to study how theme parks are designed. I love to study how um, rides are designed and made and created and all of that. And so um, I really love Roller Coaster Tycoon is probably my all time favorite um, 
video game. Though right now, maybe you've noticed on my Switch profile, it's kind of blended with Jurassic Park Evolution and City Skylines. I I really enjoy um, sandbox creation games, honestly. They're some of my favorites. But let's see. Um, other hobbies and interests? A little bit of video games. Believe it or not, I don't play as many video games as I think people might think I do. I, I like video games a lot. I played a lot more when I was younger. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's kind of it. I started rock climbing a couple years ago, and then I just got a little too busy for it, but I love that very much. Oh, 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 rock climbing, uh, camping and hiking and all of that stuff. That's absolutely a passion of mine. Um, I adore just like tent camping, raw, basic stuff, being out in the wilderness. And uh, it's a real pleasure for me. I was raised camping. My family... We were very like, you know, middle class and my parents um, always were very considerate when it came to vacations. But most of the times those vacations were driving in a car to some state park in Wisconsin or something like that. And so I have very fond memories of that. And uh, um, I don't know, I think that just kind of helped me kind of love nature, even though I also love being in the city. It's, it's a little bit of both, you know what I mean? You've just given me a whole lot to unpack here. I learned so much oh, about you. <laughs> let's do it. I know it was a bit. Oh, I, kind of, I kind of like barfed a bunch of info at you. I told you I'm actually weirdly a little nervous. So, so oh, let's no. let's. That. So, which amusement park that you've either visited or studied is your favorite? I mean, you know, constantly studying what Disney's doing, and Disney's in a really special spot right now over the last. I don't know, five years because they're ramping up for a 50th anniversary with Epcot and they're doing some other stuff. The literal individual rides are always fascinating. One of the things that Disney does that I think is awesome is they really consider the experience, the guest experience when you're traveling from ride to ride. And one of the coolest things that Disney cares about and other theme parks are starting to as well is like line of sight, making sure that you're not necessarily looking at Toy Story Land while you're looking at Star Wars Land or whatever it is. You know what I mean? By the way, I haven't been to Disney World since I was 14 years old. It's been decades. Like, I don't actually go to these parks that much. Um, I just look at them on Google Earth and I study them. It's so weird. Um, I, like, literally have a YouTube channel, which is just people going down water slides so you can memorize the water slides and memorize the rides. And it's so dumb. But, um, but I really love it. It's a fun little way to, you know, exercise your brain. Maybe it's like adult Legos a little bit, you know. These des you're designing these these ant these kind of ant farm experiences, but um, what I think one of the companies that have been in that have really been catching my attention lately is is Universal with with what they're doing with all their different parks, Universal Studios. I think in some ways what Universal is doing is almost more interesting than what Disney's doing because what Universal doesn't have a lot of IP. You know what I mean? They have a little bit here and there. They got Jurassic Park and whatever. But they don't have Harry Potter and they don't have, um, I mean, they used to have Marvel-ish. It's a complicated relationship right now. And I love that kind of like legal who owns what IP stuff. I think that stuff's absolutely fascinating. So I was very excited to have Spider-Man appear in Civil War, but I digress. Um, Universal's doing some interesting things right now where they are really kind of mastering the, the art of creating these contracts and these relationships with other production companies, sometimes even their competitors. Like Warner Brothers is arguably a competitor, but they kind of came together and Warner Brothers said, we don't want to make a theme park. And uh, Universal said, we'd like Harry Potter. And so they were able to figure something out. You know what I mean? And what that, what that has led to is something that I'm particularly interested in and kind of fanboy excited about. Um, 
you know, I think you're probably aware of Super Mario World that has been, it's, it's, they built it at the Japanese Universal Studios, which allegedly is the best out of the three, out of the Hollywood one and, and the one over in Orlando. Apparently, Super Mario World or Super Nintendo World is coming to the Florida one and, of course, the California one as well. But then there's like a phase two where they're going to bring in Donkey Kong Country Land. And allegedly, there are some rumblings of like a Zelda area. And it's, you know, we're on our third season of another Zelda podcast right now. If there is going to be a Legend of Zelda expansion at a theme park four years from now, I am going to make sure that we are there. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> I'll pull any kind of press press pass I need. You know, we got a couple of years to amp up and get there, but that would be so much fun. So that's um, I don't know. I I owned an art gallery when I was younger for about four years when I was in my early twenties, and for me that was another experiment. So actually, you know what? I got to back up. I I just said that my parents would take us camping all the time, but the other big when we would ever do like a day trip the big fancy things that they would do for us is they'd bring us to museums. And so we lived in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So we were about an hour away from Milwaukee and about an hour away from Chicago. And it would be like, Hey kids, today we're going to go to the science of science and industry museum in Chicago. And we were like, yeah, we can't wait. And then, uh, Hey, we're going to go to the Milwaukee public museum. And we're like, ah, we can't wait. Hey, see the there? It's amazing. And I always loved it. Even as a little kid, I, adored going to museums because I was always kind of obsessed with this experience of how people move through the museum. Why does someone walk one direction and not another direction? And how can you put exhibits together in certain ways to, to curate their experience as they move through a museum? And how do you portray information that is sometimes done on a, in an audio way? How do you do it visually or even ex, ex, um, experientially? I don't think that's a word, but as an experience. Um, and so when I had this little art gallery in my 20s, it was only a couple thousand square feet. It wasn't huge. It was like a storefront art gallery. But we would have exhibits once a month, and I'd represent an artist for a couple months. We'd have contracts and all that. And boy, was it fun for me to try to figure out, okay, well, we'll, we'll we had like hanging walls and little walls you could push around. And how can you create an experience where someone's going to walk through and see a piece of artwork, and then 30 seconds later or a minute later, they're going to see one or two other pieces in a certain order and what are their emotions going to be when they hit those pieces? And, you know, they have the right to turn around and walk a different way. They have the right to start a conversation with someone while they're standing there. But how do you kind of have people move through these experiences? And I'm kind of obsessed with that, I think. I think it's just fascinating. Is that considered logistics? I don't know. I, for me, logistics, maybe back. I, when, I, when I hear the word logistics, I think back-end logistics, which is like... Um, you know, making sure your trucks are getting things from warehouses and getting them to stores and whatever. Um, but it might be logistics. Yeah, it might be. I, I don't know. I don't know. I used to make theme parks in the backyard when I was a kid and stuff like that. Well, wow, we're diving into places I didn't expect to go already. But um, I just think it's really interesting when you can take someone and take even a group of people and not directly control them but invite them to I don't know how to say this I don't know how to say this like will they walk to that side will they walk over there will they will they you know it's a little bit okay here we go I'm before working on six five before working for six five media I was a as a graphic designer most of my career and I really really appreciate design and I um I think in some ways so I also really appreciate and enjoy in like interior design and I used to joke whenever I would design a house or design a room or, or design an art gallery, 
I used to jo- kind of joke with my family and friends. I'd say, well, it's just like graphic design, but it's just in 3D, not in 2D. You know what I mean? Because in, in two-dimensional design, you need to make sure that a reader's eye is, back in the day, moving across the page in an appropriate way. You need to make sure that the text is fitting in certain ways. And then when you started, then, you know, in the later years, we started getting into user, you know, like UI and UX, which was user interface and user experience design, where you're now de- de- literally designing almost in four dimensions, where you're designing a two-dimensional experience. And then if someone clicks on a menu and that menu appears, well, now you're you're not really in a third dimension, but you're in another layered experience. But then there's a time element. How long does that thing come down? How long does it take for someone to transition from a menu to a menu and to move to another thing? And uh, so I guess I just kind of have, I guess I just have user experience on the brain is what I, I'll, I'll reel this all into. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. That That is fascinating. So what... <laughs> Cracking up if y'all can't. So embarrassed. Start I didn't watching it. expect to dump all this out right in the top of the episode. That's the whole point of these. This love is where you. It. I love it. I was going to say this is where you take a dump, but then I realized that mm-hmm. that comes mm-hmm. out a little. That's the. Different. I think that's the first sentence in the description for the episode. <laughs> take a dump with David Geiser. Oh my god. That's on the internet now. You can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. It's it. This is the whole point. It's to pull things out of people and let them talk about themselves, right? Yeah. So I want to know, David, with all of these interests, is this kind of what led to your interest in video games or are they related? I think think there's another career. I would have had, I think, so I was born in 1981 and computers were I mean, they were kicking around in the 70s, but really, you know, they, I, re- I remember being in first grade and my school, which was a, a, a perfectly fine elementary school, it wasn't poor or rich. It was like, you know, a normal school with normal budgets. I remember when we got a computer, it was like a computer for, the, for all of first grade. And there was one computer for all of second grade. And they would wheel the computer around on a cart the size of half a car. And they'd wheel the computer into the room. And then each kid would have tickets to like be on the computer for an hour. And if you got better grades, you would get more tickets to be on the computer. And then eventually by the time third grade came around, which what is that? Is that, it's like mid 80s. I guess it's late 80s really, isn't it? Yeah, maybe 88 or so. Then, you know, a lot of the classrooms had three or four computers in the room. And then when I was in sixth grade, we got a computer lab. And that's when Apple actually, because they were all IBMs back in the day. But that's when Apple started doing their big push of like getting computers in the schools because they wanted the kids to get used to Macs. And then they would use Macs as they grew up, I think was the strategy there. Um, so I remember I, I, there was a day in fourth grade my dad worked at Snap-on Tools in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, actually, which is where their corporate headquarters is, believe it or not. And he was an electrical engineer, but, but they also, his team dealt with the battery testers. You'd hook them up to a car and the software would test your battery. And they were getting, they, basically what it was was they were getting new computers in the office and in the, in the, in the lab and they were gonna give some computers away. And this is, this is back in the day when it was just a keyboard, it was, IBM had the orange and black screens, you know, Apple kind of had the green and black. And he brought one of the old computers home and he set it up in our kitchen. The thing was humongous. And, you know, but the thing was humongous, but the screen was tiny. And um, um, he kind of sat me down and he started teaching me. He's just started teaching me how to navigate through DOS. And then he started teaching me some languages. 
And uh, I started learning QBasic and I immediately, immediately fell in love with it. It was the, it was the coolest thing in the world. And so then all through junior high and high school, I was taking, I took computer programming, um, up through, up through, I have kind of a weird story about that actually. Um, anyway, I took a computer program because I thought, I thought, um, the language, like building things inside language that would create things that would appear on a screen that would influence someone's experience was absolutely the coolest thing in the world to me. Now, growing up, I did like Legos and wooden blocks and, uh, constructs. I had a lot of constructs. It was always building toys for me when I was growing up. I just really loved it. Um, but with the computer, you could just, you could type all these things and you could create this logic to it that you could create experiences. So I started, um, in sixth grade, I started programming a Jurassic Park role-playing game because I was obsessed with Jurassic Park. I pretty much am still obsessed with Jurassic Park. It's like Zelda, Jurassic Park, Star Wars, Back to the Future is my kind of like thing. Um, so with the with the computer, it was interesting because I was um, I was well, you know, I we didn't know it when I was younger, but I'm tremendously dyslexic, tremendously dyslexic, almost to the point where it's I I I don't want to be over dramatic, but I almost can't read. And I, in quotes, I'm saying that with finger quotes. It's like when I look at a billboard on the highway, I'm definitely seeing the balance of the shapes first, and then you kind of like see well, there's a blurry part of stuff. And then you zoom into that with your brain and then you kind of go, okay, well that's words. And then you start zooming into the words and you try to figure out what each letter is. And then you start placing them together and you start, okay, is that, is that the word watch? Is that the word match? Is that the word wood? And then you start putting them together. It takes me a long time. Just, just takes me forever to read. Um, and in fact, the quickest I ever read is when I'm reading user comments on another Zelda podcast. It's always a really stressful experience for me. I've got them up and I've got them real big and I try to read them. And I don't know if you ever noticed Celeste, but I, I kind of use a voice like this when I'm reading the comments because it helps me read a little, I'm speaking slower to help me read faster. But anyway, um, um, but what was weird was, so I was a terrible reader and I remember in second grade, like kids would just look at paper and they would know what the sentences were on the paper. And I would think like, how are they doing this? How are they? I remember being even a little jealous and kind of confused why I couldn't see the words. Um, but with computer programming, even though the characters, even though it's W and A and B and Z and D, it's something about the, I guess I would call it the semantics of how computer code works. It reads different than a sentence. You know what I mean? You don't read it linear. There's brackets and they become, mm -hmm. they become building blocks. They become building blocks. They're just word building blocks. And so, you know, if you're, if you're building, even like in a spreadsheet, if you're building a formula and you're saying, okay, I want this to look up that and then equal this plus that, and then bring in this other thing, you're really just connecting a lot of things. It's not like, you know, Mary went down the slide and found the quick brown fox or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think I really enjoyed the being on the computer because it, I think that's what introduced design to me actually is what it is. I think that that's when I, I maybe I, hmm. You know, honestly, even when I talk about doing another Zelda podcast, I joke with you guys that I don't, I'm not a very good writer. Um, I don't, I'm not literally, like logistically not a very good writer. And so I prefer to record things and I prefer to to speak. And from even from an early age, I remember that being the case 
I remember asking my teachers in junior high if I could do my homework on the computer, because by then I had a computer with a scanner. I got a scanner for Christmas. It was an HP scanner and it plugged in USB style. And I had to download drivers. There wasn't plug and play or any of that yet. And so I would take my homework, which would be on paper, scan it in, bring it into an editor, and then type out my answers <laughs> on my homework, reprint it, and then give it to my teachers. And I think they kind of were cool with it. I think they were okay with it. You know, I didn't, I didn't get particularly good grades in school um, because school was hard. But uh, but I also kind of loved school. It was always a weird relationship. And then my friends that I would hang out with were also the kinds of people that liked to read. I I, I was always a fan of science and, and knowledge and all that kind of stuff. But I just had to get to it a different way. You know what I mean? And so then I think what that did is it shaped me of trying to give it a different way or express it in a different way. And I think that's where the designer stuff kind of kind of um, erupted in my brain. Honestly, I'll that's stop rambling. No, that is fascinating. And I think listeners who have also dealt with dyslexia and, and other kind of challenges, I think they'll really appreciate your sharing your story because I'm, I'm sure as a child, it's even more daunting, I would imagine. Well, it's confusing because you don't know what it is. You, mm -hmm. to you, it's to you, everyone else is weird, you know? And then, I mean, this, I don't really talk about this much either, but um, in the early days of like the ADD craze, I was in seventh grade my second grade so i had a weird experience in high school or in, in school because um i would get bad grades and some teachers would say he's terrible in class he's always drawing or he's looking out the window or he's you know he's not paying attention to whatever war we were talking about in social studies or whatever um and so some teachers thought i was really not very good at school and then um others thought i was great so like when i was in second grade they actually put me in the, did you have like the enrichment program when you were back in, in grade school? It, it was, was for like something like that or academic enhancement. Sure. Yeah. My, in my school system, they called it enrichment. It was for people who were performing above their like grade level or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, I was invited and tested to be a part of that. And I was actually put in it. And then I kind of thought like, okay, cool, whatever. Um, so in second grade, I went into the enrichment program and I was there for a couple of years and then I elected to leave, honestly, that's a little bit of a side story. But, um, but it was this weird experience where some people are telling me that I'm brilliant, but then others are saying, you know, he's dumb as a box of rocks. He can't even read this sentence. And so it's, it's a weird place. You, you don't know where you are. You know what I mean? You got to kind of figure your, figure out where you are. Oh, and then when I got, when this ADD thing got diagnosed, so in second grade, the teacher that, the teacher that elected for me to, or, or, or I guess spoke to the school district about me testing for the enrichment program. Um, Mrs. Walker was her name. She was awesome. She, uh, she told my parents in a teacher, what is it called? A teacher Parent teacher conference. There it is. Thank you. Uh, they have told me that she said to them, you know, I think he might have ADD as well. And this is like back when that was a word that nobody knew what that was. You know, we've kind of gone up and down through a weird ADD craze this last decade. But um, and I think my parents at the time were like, oh, we're not sure about that. We don't know. We don't know. You know, but come seventh grade, one more teacher said it to them. They said, I'd really like him to get tested for ADD. And so then I had to go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. It's the one that gives you medicine, not psychiatrist. The Thank so you. I always they, reverse. They can't prescribe medicine. Yeah, psychiatrists can prescribe medicine. 
Thank you. Cool. I appreciate that. Thank you. And um, they and they diagnosed me with ADHD that I was very hyper, even though in some of the classes I was fading away. And I remember the psychiatrist. What he said, the psychiatrist explained. His name was Doctor Young, and he was really a, a great guy. He would still kind of we'd have sessions where we'd chat, you know, but he wasn't like he wasn't saying like, oh, tell me about your father. Um, and he explained it to me. He said, well, what it is is with ADHD. He said, imagine a town, because I was a little worried about going on medication. He said, imagine a town and, um, and then there's police officers. And a lot of people, their police officers work properly. Um, for, for people with ADD, the medicine, for people who are hyper, it means that, um, you know, basically he was saying, one of the reasons you might be calm in class or your teachers are perceiving it as calm is because the truth is your, um, what was it? It was like when the, when the police get lazy, the town erupts, you know, and if the town is creativity and the police are whatever, the, the, the left side of the brain or whatever it is, you know, basically mm. you see where I'm going here. I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds there with that one, but um, it really helped me kind of process. So then we did try medication for me for a couple of years. Um, and I had really con conflicting emotions about it because I kind of liked who I was, you know what I mean? I didn't know we were going to talk oh, about anything. And I liked me. Yeah. I liked thinking about the things I thought about. And I was never bored for any second of the day ever to this day. I'm, I'm almost never bored. Um, but, but school was telling me I was wrong. You know what I mean? That's David, you're bringing up a really interesting point. And I, I, I suppose these are related because they deal with the brain, but I've heard that people who experience bipolar, schizophrenia, any kind yeah. of, or, or depression, they're almost hesitant. Some, some of them, not all of them are, they're hesitant sure. to be on the medications because they feel as though it takes away strengths that they have naturally. But unfortunately the other side is they have the negative effects. I, the reason I said yes was I saw that over the years, over the decade of being in grade school and junior high, I saw my, I felt support from my parents. I felt love from my parents, but I also saw the stress that I was giving them. Oh. And so I kind of thought, well, let's try it. You know, if, if I'm in junior high, I'm in going into high, you know, I was think it was seventh grade going into eighth. And I thought, well, let's give it a go. And they, so we started on, I think it was Dexedrine and it was timely at least. And over the course of about two and a half years, I was on all these different ones, Dexedrine, Ritalin. There was one that started with a C that I don't even remember anymore. Each one had their own set of side effects. Um, Dexedrine, I didn't eat and sleep and I lost a bunch of weight. Oh. And um, the Ritalin was fine, but I think I didn't sleep with that one. Anyway, long story short, my grades did go up a little bit. Technically my grades went up. Personally, the only way I could describe it was, um, you know, when you're like a kid and you play with like toilet paper rolls and you like look through the toilet paper roll, you're like, oh, I've got a telescope. I, I can see so well. I can see so far. I had this weird feeling of kind of like I was just looking at everything through a, through a tube. Everything went, everything went like this. With the medicine. I, yeah, with the medicine. And I think that's technically what it's supposed to do. I think that's technically the point is it? And then you're like, I'm looking at my paper. Okay, I'm reading my paper. You know what I mean? And so that's fine. And my grades did go up and I was able to, you know, I was focused on those things. But um, at the time I was starting to do a little bit of act. I was doing some acting before the medication, doing, you know, theater and stuff. 
And I, I started getting a little bit, I was, I couldn't remember my lines as well when I was on stage with the medicine. And I just kind of felt for me, my perspective was I felt kind of zombie, like, you know what I mean? And, uh, it was fine for a year and a half or so. But when I hit the end of ninth grade, I remember saying to my parents, um, I'd really like to try to not be on the medicine. Um, at that point we had gone through a few of them and they all technically, technically worked. Um, and I said, I think I, you know, I kind of, I feel like I've missed out on a few things these past couple of years, the things I really care about. And, and my parents blessed them without hesitation. They were like, yep, no problem. It was super cool. And so I, I said, you know, I think I'd rather live a life where I have to find behavioral things that can help me, um, habits and practices and stuff like that. And maybe I'll just have a life that's mildly chaotic my whole life, but I'll, but I'll, I know I'll do the things I want to do and all that kind of stuff. So I kind of knew as I went through high school, I, I mean, I'll say it right here on the internet, but, um, I, I graduated, I barely graduated high school. I think I had a, I had like a 2.1 GPA. My, I mean, my parents were happy if I was getting like C's and B's that was exciting. Well, actually, actually, I digress. Um, or no, 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 not digress. I, uh, I should actually say that it was really weird because it was unbalanced. I would, my report card would be like, um, art class was A's, computer programming, A's, um, you know, a few of the other ones. Weirdly, I was good at geometry, but I was really bad at algebra. Um, you know, so when I took geometry, my math was A's and then, but then when we went into another one, it was, you know, and then, uh, social studies, I'm absolutely getting D's in. Science was a weird one. Um, I got a couple F's in science. I really love science in general. Massive fan. In fact, just today I found, I don't know, this is also my nerdiness mixing in. Just today, Celeste, I found the Hot Wheels edition of the uh, Perseverance rover that just landed on Mars. Oh, wow. Okay. okay. Listeners, cool? you have to check out the YouTube video of this. Look at that. This is for real. This is number 95 of this year's Hot Wheels release. And I heard that they had done this. And I just want to support... Mattel for putting nerdy science things in the, you know, the, in their Hot Wheels lineup. And so I bought one and I think that's super cool. So I've always been a fan of science, but um, when it came to doing the, I guess you could say the homework, it was hard, but I always excelled in the labs. And um, there was a, Mr. Standish was a science teacher in high school that he, he gave me an F and he told my parents in the uh, parent teacher conference, he said, this is, it's compl it's complicated to process, but he said, this is the smartest kid I'm ever going to fail, but I'm going to fail him because that's, that's like what the system is. And it, I remember them telling me that he said that, and I really liked Mr. Standish a lot. And I remember my experience was like, yeah, sounds right. That tracks. <laughs> I was like, that's about right. Yeah. I, I didn't do those, those, I didn't do those other assignments correctly. And, you know, I was, I, a lot of times I'd skip class and literally go to the lab to work on more things. Um, you know, you, you know, in how in like early high school, everybody builds the hovercraft out of a vacuum. Like that's a classic thing. I remember ours wasn't working well. So I would, I would skip Spanish class to go sneak off into the lab. Or when I was computer programming, I cut class a lot to sneak off into the computer lab to write computer code and, and, uh, do, do graphic design. Photoshop was just coming around about that time, or at least it was in the schools. I think it was Photoshop two or three by the time I was in 11th grade. Um, so coming out of high school, I just knew that it was going to be that, that I was going to just go through the world a little differently, I guess, you know, but that, that, you're one of the smartest people I know, David, and I don't think school 
and grades are a reflection of someone's intelligence completely. That's not, I'm not disregarding people who make good grades or anything, yeah. but like, like, it's a lot like of different, teacher. yeah, pardon me. It's yeah. like your, it's like your teacher said, this is how the system is designed. And I, I find, and you probably, you're probably aware of this. There are more ways for students, for young people to learn. There's electronic yeah. learning. There's, uh, well, I mean, this isn't new, but that, uh, Montessori but there's different ways schooling. that people learn. Yes. I'm so sorry. Pardon me, but different, oh. you know, um, mm -hmm. I've learned about myself that I'm someone who learns by kind of learn. I, I'm a, I'm a self-teacher in many ways. So mm -hmm. I will dig into something and learn it and pull it in and, and all of that. Whereas if someone's teaching me something, I don't really hold on to it as well. And then there's other people that are really good at, at being taught something and, uh, they may not fully comprehend the context of what they're doing, but they know that they're doing it. And, and to them, it makes sense. And I, that's super cool too. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of different ways that, I mean, obviously we're learning that people think different ways and process things different ways and, and all of that. So I'm, I'm, uh, You know, it was a little, it's, it's, it's a weird, it's not even so much that it's a roller coaster of emotions when you're a kid. It's that, um, you don't know where you, sometimes you feel brilliant and sometimes you feel dumb and sometimes you feel in the middle and sometimes you feel like they just don't get it, but then you feel like they totally get it or, you know what I mean? You just gotta, you just gotta go with it. You just gotta find the things you like and focus on them and, uh, and find your way to kind of fit into the world, you know? I'm sure you've heard this quote. Uh, it's attributed to Albert Einstein. Every minute, every person is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it's going to spend its whole life thinking it's stupid. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that. That's great. I'm very satisfied with my um, alleged failures and, and my successes and, and other things too. I, I'm, I don't have any regrets. I'm, I actually, I turned 40 in a month. I, uh, I realized just the other day and I'm like, yeah, this is great. I won't have it any other way. I'm so pleased with the, the first 40 years of my life. <laughs> and this is this is so philosophical. Uh, people, nobody has a perfect life. They're, everybody struggles in some way, even if you don't see it, even if they don't share it. Oh, and I've been, and you know, and that extended into my adult life. There were, so I, I, I went to Columbia College in Chicago after high school. And it was the perfect fit for me personally back then. That was almost, you know, was that 15, 20 years ago? Um, that school, I don't know what that school is like these days. I've heard it's gotten a little bit more expensive and a little bit, maybe the, you know, I think they have a new person at the top or something. I can't speak to that at all, but it was the perfect school for me back in the early two thousands. And, um, I really enjoyed my time there because it was kind of one of these self teaching schools. Hmm. So one of the criticisms of Columbia college in Chicago 20 years ago was it was like a tech art school. It was technically an arts. It was technically an art school but they didn't teach you art, which I loved. Um, they basically said, so I went, so originally I went to Columbia for uh, theater. I did, I kind of glossed over this, but in high school and coming out of high school, I was doing a tremendous amount of theater and acting and I was doing musical theater. You know, obviously it all starts in high school, but I got very lucky and I, with the exception of reading um, the reading the you know whenever you audition for something they throw a page in your face and you got to read it real fast. Uh, with the exception of that being difficult, I usually excelled at auditions and I was able to get parts in local community theaters and I was able to get some parts. I actually got you know in some professional theaters and I was very excited to 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 get paid for a couple things in Milwaukee and it was, I felt like I was really really doing well. But uh, so I actually thought, okay, well I guess I'll go. I guess my life's work will be being an actor. And so I originally went to Columbia 
for acting and I signed up in all the theater classes and I enjoyed my time there very much. But what happened was, so Columbia has a very, in my opinion, very good um, uh, film program. Uh-huh. Their big claim to fame is Janusz Kaminski went here. There's a lot of other people that went to Columbia here, I say, because I live in Chicago now, but, you know, went to Columbia and Janusz Kaminski was uh Steven Spielberg's, he's Steven Spielberg's director of photography and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, um, the, I'm thinking about way too many things right now. I'm getting a little distracted. I apologize. But uh, at Columbia in that first year, I would act in a play and like the film department kids would go to see the shows so that they could basically, I guess, find actors. And so then I started getting asked to be in all these little student films and short films and by the end of my first year, my freshman year, I don't know, I did, you know, maybe five or six plays in that first year, but, um, but I was doing tons of films. By the, time I was, by the time I was going into my sophomore year, I already had been in like 30 student films, and I'm not joking at all. I remember I had three or four going at any time because um, I, really, I really enjoyed it, and I think, the, I think the directors of these films, I guess, p- perhaps, you know, enjoyed what I was giving them. Um, but at the end of my first year, I found that I was really loving cinema and film. And so I was doing the theater stuff, and that's fine. It was great. It was, it's, you're athletic, and you're jumping around. Especially if you're doing musical theater, you're really bringing it all. I mean, you're, you literally go to the gym when you're not in rehearsal, when you're doing musical theater, because you got to stay fit and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but I remember being on like these sometimes tiny, tiny little film sets f- to be in a film, and sometimes big film sets where you, I mean, a few times I even had like a little trailer, which I felt like I was really, really hot stuff. It wasn't my own trailer. It would be a trailer with everyone had a little desk. But nevertheless, you know, and I remember the first time I had craft service, I was like, I've made it. <laughs> so um, um, what happened was as an actor, instead of going back to the trailer or going back to my little film chair or, or, or sometimes just sitting on the curb, if it was a tiny little film, um, I usually would kind of stay on set and I just was, was would watch the filmmakers. And I'd watch the director work and the cinematographer work and sometimes just even the logistics, I guess, of like where they were moving lights and putting lights and all that kind of stuff. And I found that I loved watching that happen. And so my second year of college, I switched my major over to film and um, and. I kind of because also at the same time, I was kind of tracking the careers, you know, this the Internet was around by then. It was very when I was in sixth grade, so even four or five years before this, this is like mid-90s, I remember going to Nintendo.com on my lunch breaks of school, and you wait five minutes for four pictures to load back then. It was dial-up, you know what I mean? It, yeah. Was, yeah. it was the whole I thing. Remember, I remember dial-up. I remember, I remember getting excited that I could read one or two paragraphs about some, you know, actually, actually, uh, Ocarina of Time. I remember, like, learning about Ocarina of Time on the internet. And so, um, by you know, a couple years forward, I, I started tracking the careers of some Broadway actors and stuff, and I was kind of starting to track some film actors, and I started to realize that with theater, um, it's definitely a passion project or a passion lifestyle, because the I mean, even even something like Wicked, which hadn't come out yet, it, it was it was a few years after that, but even Idina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth being in Wicked, they get their they're one or two million to be in Wicked for, and a lot of times it's a lot less than that, to be honest. I mean, if you're just like a working actor, it's you're you're lucky to get twenty thousand for a performance that you're in for three months, and that's great. You might go, well, twenty thousand for three months, you know, that's 
that's working at a Walmart or something for a whole year. But the thing is, is that you then are looking for a job again for eight months. You know what I mean? It's a very stressful lifestyle. And that's where I got a little pragmatic. And I started to think like, I think I want to get into film because <laughs> that's better. Um, but <laughs> with that said, now this is what leads me into the podcasting. Um, with that said, I took, again, a bit of a pragmatic choice and all my friends were going into going into the film department and they were majoring in directing or they were majoring in cinematography or, or something the, the really smart ones majored in literally just lighting design because those those people right now greg brezovic was one of them like he's working in california right now non-stop moving lights around designing like you know like you know the ones that like really took these every everyone wanted to be a director because that's like the big fancy version but but the truth is you know, it's like 2% of those people actually really become directors. So I kind of was looking at the program and I thought, I wonder if I major in producing that. I think I kind of really like that idea. It kind of came back to building the systems. It kind of came back to creating the experience. I remember being on set and the producers were always kind of fairly quiet on set because what they were really doing is solving the problems they were looking at the mega problems, the meta problems even sometimes where, you know, the, well, we've got 10 days to shoot this thing and, and we got to get the rights for this and that. Speaker device changed. Hello? I'm, you're here. My uh -oh. AirPods, my AirPods cut out. Uh-oh. Check, check, check. We are here. I am here. Hello. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what happened, but my uh, earphones cut out. The wonders of technology. I know. Uh, I can pick it up here. Um, and then taking the, you know, the producers were always working in the background, and they were the ones solving the bigger problems. Um, I realized pretty quickly, like, oh, the producer makes the movie as much as the director does. The director might have some of the artistic vision, but the producers, the producers do too. But the producers also get to figure out how to shoot a film in 10 days or two months or how to get the, all the equipment and the trucks there. Now, now, honestly, there's, there's roles in film that, that specialize in all of those things. You know, there's location managers and all that kind of stuff, but I really started getting excited. And this is also around the time, like episode one had come out. Yes. I'm using that as an example. And I remember there was a real, you know, Rick, what is it? Rick Cullum, I think was the producer of episode one. And I was able to, there was, a, this was at a time when DVD extras was, was a big thing. And you could watch these kind of behind the scenes video, uh, you know, little documentaries of a lot of films. And episode one had a big 55 minute one. And you could watch these people do their job. You could watch the producers produce and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And I got really excited about that. So I went to school for producing and I am going to um, leave it there because I think you have other questions for me and I'll, I'll just keep on going. No, I feel. It, it actually goes into podcasting and i'm okay david this is really this is really sad when you said episode one i was like of another zelda podcast oh no i think no, you mean star wars uh, the phantom menace <laughs> I, but i zelda was on my mind and i, I was like, wait oh my gosh that no. wasn't that long ago <laughs> no. and then i think like jurassic park three and then the, the, those original x-men movies were happening and i remember fox was having a lot of issues because their actors were getting too expensive for x-men three and i was reading about all of this i was i was I loved all of this and i remember that that i remember there's an article that came out about how the third x-men movie was killing the x-men franchise and and it, the producers were literally trying to kill the franchise because they couldn't afford 
Halle Berry and Patrick Stewart, they couldn't like, you know, these, these, these films, they were adding characters and they were getting super expensive. And also this is the same time that the Disney Pixar fight was going on. And so all of this, I keep hitting my mic here, all of this um, logistics truly, I just, I just ate it up. I just loved it. Absolutely. And so then I started, so I still acted in films, but then I started acting in films and I was kind of like, you know, I was getting more out of it, I think, than the people that were asking me to act in their films. They thought, oh, we got this actor, but really I was kind of like, okay, so what would I do in this situation? How would I fix this problem? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And, you know, the producer the whole time. So what was the first podcast you were ever involved with or either someone else's or your own? So, um, the first, so I came into podcasts bef almost before they were called podcasts. It, it's, it was, it's been a solid 15 years or more. My first podcast was, um, well, it actually was connected to the art gallery. So this is around the time. So, okay. So very quickly, very quickly coming out of college because I was acting in films and, and starting to take a couple other jobs in film. I never actually produced, I've never actually produced a film to this day. Um, sometimes people ask me about that. I just have too much fun producing podcasts, but um, because it's kind of weirdly between film and television, but we can talk about that later. Uh, but I got very, very lucky through some of the people I knew and I was able to get a job at the Oprah show. And I worked there for about three and a half, four years living here in Chicago. And I was a total underling when I first uh, started and was able to kind of climb the ladder a bit. And I learned a tremendous amount working there um, because of the interesting thing about Harpo Studios is that it's at the time, certainly, this is like early 2000s. This was so early that while I was working there, they were making an expansion to the building to build the website department so that we could have an Oprah website. That's how early this was. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, admittedly, it was a bit behind the times. I mean, this was easily, easily early 2000s, you know what I mean? And, and I'm sure there was like an Oprah.com that was third party outsourced for seven or eight years, but they were going to do an internal one so they could really have control of the content. Streaming didn't exist yet, nothing like that. So, um, so that kind of really inspired me and it kind of accidentally inspired me in the wrong direction because I really enjoyed working there because oh, what I was going to say is working at Harper Studios, it was all one building. It was like this old warehouse over here, 30 minutes west of downtown, mm -hmm. which allegedly was haunted because of course every warehouse always is. Um, it's like where they stored the bodies when there was a big boat that tipped over in the river a hundred years ago. And that's actually a true story. The bodies are stored there, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. Um, but what, but working in that building, it's a bit like maybe like Pixar in the way that, um, all the production happened inside the building. So a lot of times production companies, especially like smaller film production companies, they won't own the lighting equipment or the, the even the people that use lighting. they'll just hire the company that does it. You know what I mean? Or when you're building a film, you know, so in other words, at, at Harpo, every, you know, they owned the lights, they owned the studios, they owned the, the teams that went out and shot extra stuff and came back. They owned the cameras, they bought it all. And it was very, um, I guess, uh, cellular. I'm not sure. It was like its own thing. So you got to see all aspects. It was really cool. So I got so inspired by that, that I decided to kind of start my own company. And I was 23 when I left Harpo. I started Harpo when I was 19, which was very exciting. Um, I was in my second year of college because for the first year or so I was just, I was just, you know, I was like getting coffee for the editors over there at Harpo. You know what I mean? It was very, I was just like a kid, but, um, 
I, maybe I could have stuck with them and I'd be a producer on the O network or not now because now they're closing down that thing. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, but it, it was a big fork in the road decision for me because I said, you know, I think I can make my own production company. This is amazing. I can do this too. I, I can see all the different, you know, you're a young kid, 23, 24. And so I, I branched off. Uh, my, my best friend at the time and I created a company called Visioneer Entertainment. And we thought, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to we're going to make content and we're going to, and there was, there was not YouTube yet. YouTube did not exist yet. This is still more than 10 years ago. I think YouTube's 11 or 12 years old now, but um, at the time, the only strategy was make industrial films or shoot wedding videos and make a little bit of money to shoot a short. And then, then you, and then you spend four years pushing this short around a bunch of film festivals. And then you try to get money to make a bigger thing. And that was the strategy. Well, that disintegrated pretty quickly. Um, we, we bought a shop that ended up being in Racine, Wisconsin. And we started kind of here in Chicago, but we bought a shop in Racine, Wisconsin. And I remember thinking like, oh boy, you know, this is gonna, we've got rent to pay. We have, we have, uh, we have, we have this equipment. We're going to be paying our heating bills. I don't think we're going to have income right away. And so my friend and I were like, oh, I got a great, we got a great idea. There's the building we bought used to be like a doctor's office. And so there was kind of a lobby. And then there was a series of offices going back. This becomes important for the podcast, actually. Um, and we said, well, what if we, I had always, I had always been a fan of, of art. I took a lot of art classes. I was a fan of going to art museums from my family and all that kind of stuff. And I said, I tell you what, what if we do a little art gallery in the front? Nobody even needs to know. We don't have to keep it a secret, but nobody even needs to know that we're a production company in the back. How about we, you know, the equivalent of like sell some t-shirts in the front and uh and that can help us pay our rent so we thought this was a great idea and we uh, did a little bit of reno for about two weeks two months we did some renovations on the front and we created a gallery that was called 716 fine art uh the address was 716 it's very every art gallery is always like the numbers like the address it's all very pretentious and you know but but that's what we went with 716 fine art 716 fine art i like it it sounds like a sitcom can you make it a sitcom about your life <laughs> Please. well maybe it kind of became one because what happened was we were getting a couple little tiny micro gigs here and there, nothing that would pay the bills. And, um, you know, I mean, we'd, we'd make $300 off a job that took two months. It was not good. And, um, um, but we were selling some art. And then one day I remember I was talking and we were like, well, you know, we could probably take the gallery and push it back another hundred feet of this hallway. Uh, uh, we'd make the gallery twice as big, sell twice as much artwork. And so we did that. And then I remember there was a day where we were looking at the gallery and we were like, well, you know, if we take out this first front office, I think we can make the gallery bigger. We don't need that office. We'll, we'll uh, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so can share an office in the back. And before you know it, the, the gallery took up 60% of this building and we had like four offices in the back. One of them was like, we turned it into an editing bay and then the others were kind of just computers on desks and stuff like that. And we, found, we were finding some success with the art gallery. And so pretty quickly, our production company accidentally became an art gallery. And that became the main business. And so then for another three years, um, we ran the art gallery. Actually, after two years, my friend who started the production company with me, he, he opted to come back to Chicago and, uh, you know, find, find other work. I think he's working as a, I think he's working, he just finished working on Shameless out here because they shoot Shameless, the, what is it, okay. the Showtime show here in Chicago? And I think they just did the okay. final season. Okay. So he, he works out here, which is great. Um, but I kind of was really getting excited about the art gallery thing because it was, if I'm being honest with myself, it was my own private museum that I got to experiment with and build and have these 
it was the perfect mix of like you could throw a party once a month um get some get some high-end clients in there let them look at medium expensive artwork and sell some of it and sometimes you'd sell one piece and pay your rent for the month and sometimes you'd have to sell you know 10 pieces um but it was an experiment it was it was awesome every time you do a new layout you try to think well, how will this exist as a party how will this exist when it's just three people walking through um we designed a little coat check area we did a little uh um like reception type area and it was all very exciting so this is around the time that YouTube kind of started. It was just that weird icon up in the corner. I remember I was at an after party of one of the art gallery openings. Um, after a while, I managed to rent a second floor apartment that was like one building over from the art gallery. It had a nice little roof party. So occasionally we'd host literal after parties. After the reception, we'd invite the artist and their family to come up and you know, you make a couple cocktails and kind of just finish the night off or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a nice thing to do for your for these people that are that you're trying to sell their work. Um, but at that party, I remember one of my friends like pulled out their laptop and they were like, look at this video. You got to see this video. And I think it was Star Wars Kid. I think it was lightsaber Star Wars Kid. And um, and and I was like, what is this? You can watch video on the on the computer because Apple was kind of doing the stuff. This is around the time that the color. I don't know if it was. I don't know if the color iPod was out yet. The Gen 5 iPod, with finally when they were putting TV shows on there. I think okay. it was around three. So this is around the time where it was the click wheel iPod. Because I remember that was the first iPod I got. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. YouTube, okay, cool. So most of my, what we would probably find on YouTube these days for these Nintendo Directs or, or any kind of you know IGN, whatever, um, we, we find that as video streaming content these days. Back then, you had to literally watch television to get this information. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, we had a DVR, and I would DVR certain shows on G4. That was a that was like a gaming. It used to be Tech TV, and it got rebranded to be more hip for the kids. And it was a TV television network called G4. And I was uh, captivated by this network. I thought it was very exciting, very cool. But there was a day where on one of the main talk shows that they had, um. This, I think his name was Kevin. He's gone on a little bit. Kevin Poyer or something like that. It was him and another host. And they said, hey, we liked it. It was like a quick five minute segment. And I had no idea it was what it was about, but they're like, hey, so we want to tell you about this new technology. Uh, it's, it's, it's something where you take audio files and you put it on your iPod. And the other host is like, yes, yes. Some are nicknaming it podcasting. And they're like, so you take your iPod and you use this software over here. And it was like some kind of, this was all like third-party software. It was nothing official. I think I ended up using a piece of software called Lemon Z, Lemon Z or Lemons, I guess, if I remember correctly. And it would trick your iPod. You would download using XML code. I didn't even know what XML was at the time. Um, You would subscribe to a feed. And then this software would trick your iPod into thinking that it was an album, like a, like a CD album, like a, you know, music album. Okay. And so you'd have to go to songs and albums and scroll through and then find, I remember one of the first ones I listened to back in the day, like the oldies but goodies were like the Don and Drew show was one of the first truly in podcast history. It was the first real show where it was actually, it was essentially a documentary show. It's just them talking about their lives. Coincidentally, I think they lived in like Minocqua, Wisconsin, or Mequon, Wisconsin. I don't know, middle of Wisconsin or something like that. Totally no connection. I didn't learn about them that way. I was living, it was, I guess I was, yeah, I was in Wisconsin at the time. And I rem- and, and then even the G4 hosts were like, so we tried it out. 
and we recorded a 30 second audio file and they recorded something like hi this is g4 welcome to our podcast and they clicked play like on the show and it was just this black and white screen because it's an ipod you know none of it was connected to the internet yet or anything and i just in that moment i kind of pulled together my Herpo thoughts, I pulled together my producer thoughts, I pulled together my art gallery thoughts, and immediately, it, with, before the segment was done, I had this moment where I was like, this is it, this is, this is it, this is the future, this is where it's going. This is phenomenal. It's, it's, it's code that can ping code to let it know to download something. Now this stuff's all over the place now. I mean, every single streaming service uses this um, version of this technology, you know, but this idea that code could reach out to other code and queue it up to execute an action. And, and I think I subscribed to like a wine podcast because I didn't know much about wine, but I needed to know a little bit about wine to host these nice art gallery parties. Um, and then the Don and Drew show and then like one or two others, but it was so raw back then. It was bonkers raw. It was just people talking into MP3 recorders and stuff like that. I remember Don and Drew finally had like a, a theme song or something. And now also in parallel to this at the time, YouTube was existing. But the concept of like a YouTube show was years away. It was still, YouTube was just this thing where you kind of went and watched thumbnail sized funny videos, you know, that it still took minutes to download just to get a little 320 by 240 or whatever video. But I remember going to my, our, we had a couple people kind of working at the art gallery at the time. And I kind of went to the, some of them were volunteers. Most of them were, I mean, we weren't making much money sometimes. Um, you know, it was weird with the art gallery. There were times where you'd, you'd throw a party and pay your rent for three months. And then there were times where you're literally just eating a bag of potatoes for a week. You know, it's, it's, it was, it was, it was a, definitely an adventure. An adventure I'd happily talk about in another episode of some other show some other time. But, um, you know, high highs and low lows and all the rest. But ultimately, the average was like tremendously creatively fulfilling. So I went to them and I said, um, I think we should do a podcast about making an art gallery because we we we're just learning this as we go and and like two there was one guy that had worked for me in the production company he was like i, I took the sound engineer from the production company i said okay can you set this up can we 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 had like a we had like 16 tracks sitting around an analog 16 track we uh, had a kind of some mics there was a th one of the theaters that i had worked at was getting rid of some big huge microphones we said oh you're gonna throw them away we'll take them and we set up some microphones on some stands around a folding table in one of the crappy, the crappiest room in this art gallery building. It was like the back office, didn't even have a ceiling. And we would record in there. We threw up some blankets and we started doing these shows once a week where it was myself, my business partner, the sound guy, and honestly, my, my, my girlfriend at the time. And the four of us would talk about the ups and downs of making this art gallery. And we, we talked about everything. It was, we stayed respectful, but it was almost like, public board meetings. We would talk about being nervous and about an event coming up. We'd talk about if we did or didn't know much about the art form that we were displaying. We'd talk about the stresses of some of the finances. We'd talk about the celebrations. We'd discuss everything. Uh, and, then, and then we got to a point where we were able to actually get artists to come in. And then we kind of started realizing it could be a promotional tool. And we would do interviews with the artists that we were representing. And then YouTube was starting to pick up a little bit more. And uh, so we did this thing called the 716 fine art podcast obvious name i think some of that might still be out there on youtube right now but the xml the server's down that was that was about 15 years ago so the first podcast i was ever involved with that's so just a long such a long answer was the 716 fine art podcast and it was before podcasts for podcasts 
and we were making it and you couldn't get analytics. There weren't, there wasn't this kind of like, you couldn't get your URL to ping. You didn't really know how many listeners you had. You could only base it. Twitter wasn't, it didn't exist yet. Certainly not Instagram. I remember at the time I was using MySpace and by season two of 716 Fine Art Podcast, my girlfriend talked me into, pardon me, talked me into using Facebook. And I was like, I don't know what this Facebook is. MySpace is where it's at. <laughs> we started using Facebook and then you could kind of gauge if you had listeners by getting comments. And then it was somewhere around our second season. So we were 30 episodes in, not knowing what we were doing at all. We still kind of called them seasons. I liked doing that even from the beginning, but we wouldn't have any, it's not like you could promote this stuff. It wasn't even the means to do it. You could throw it up on your MySpace page and that was about it. You know, we, we kind of would like put episodes out to our email chain, the people that come into the gallery, but there definitely wasn't Twitter and Facebook ads and Instagram and all that. So uh, around season two, the iTunes 4.8 update came out. I'll never forget it. And the iTunes 4.8 update, it wasn't even a major release. It was a 0.8 update um, is what brought podcast, a podcast, uh, not a server, but a podcast manager essentially into the iTunes store at the time. Perhaps you remember this, perhaps you don't, I don't know. Oh no, because you're like really new to podcasts, aren't you? Uh, you were probably the first one of the, two or three podcasts I ever discovered in like 2017, 2018. Oh my gosh. I know. So special. <laughs> I, 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 I'm really kind of in love with your journey with podcasts. I think, I think because you're such a go-getter, it's, it's really been, it's, it's been this tremendous experience. And we have a few other people in others on the podcast that are kind of taking that trajectory too, which I'm very proud of. I don't mean to jump forward too much, but, um, 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 so we made the 716 podcast. And then uh, by about the time the fourth year of the art gallery, I was still loving doing the art gallery. And um, I remember I had a friend joke with me. I was starting to pick up some design jobs by then. I was working at a local copy shop and stuff like that. Um, I remember a friend, then YouTube, we were starting to make some YouTube videos. We did at the, the art gallery was one of the things that I did in the third year. I, we ran the, I ran the gallery for about four years. In the third year, I started realizing that we started kind of hoping, hosting open mics. We started hosting uh, concerts or we would do like live painting experiences. Um, I think it was part of the theater in me wanted to have, my pitch was always like, art doesn't just happen on the walls at 716. It happens inside the walls too, you know, in between the walls and all that kind of stuff is a very uh, promo-y kind of uh, thing to say. But um, so we would start hosting a lot of events. There would be dance companies that would work in the area and we'd let them perform in the middle of the art gallery. We'd do lighting and some of that theater stuff would come back for me. We put special lights in and all that. And, um, and what I got excited about is it was more content. It was more things to talk about. It was more things to produce about. And I had a friend joke with me. She, she was very close to me. Um, she, 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 worked for, she worked with me and, and actually was my boss for a while at the copy shop, the local copy shop. And uh, uh, Sharon, Sharon was her name. And she joked with me one day. She was like, I think you have an art gallery just so you can podcast about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I kind of took that comment to heart because I had to be truthful. And I mean, I adored making the art gallery, doing the art gallery. But I realized, oh, no, I, I, my heart's in this podcast thing um, or just the Internet content, you know. 
And so um, uh, around the fourth year, the fourth year of the art gallery was around 2008. And I, for just a few minutes here, I'll tell a sad story. Um, we were hosting, we, we were really ramping up season, uh, season, year two and year three of the art gallery. And by, by year three, I was kind of thinking like this, I think this is kind of working, even though, you know, Sharon was joking with me about all the podcasts, but I was starting to think like, maybe I've nailed it. Maybe it's this virtual experience where we, we were starting to get comments. You know, we were actually starting to get people commenting to us through emails about listening to the show and caring about our art gallery. There was one time where I was at an event. There was a concert in Milwaukee. It was kind of like a coffee house type concert. It wasn't like a, a big concert. Maybe it's not even a concert, maybe it's a performance. But anyway, um, I was there and um, a, a gal and I think her boyfriend, I was there with my girlfriend at the time who was on the show with me along with, with Matt and Alex and these other people that were all kind of on the show. We started kind of getting these identities, almost these, not characters, we were ourselves, but these identities on the show. And um, she came up to us with her boyfriend and she was like, I'm sorry, are, are you, are you uh, David and Don and Matt? Because the three of us are hanging out. And we're like, yeah, we are. What's up? And she's like, oh my God, I listen to your podcast all the time. I love your podcast so much. I've been listening to you for years. It's, I've been hearing your journey. And she was like totally fanning out. And we were like, oh my gosh, what is happening? You know, and it, it was very exciting. And, and she, would, like, she lived in California or something. I, I mean, let's be honest. There was a connection. Probably she had a mutual friend with one of the musicians that probably had a mutual friend with the gallery. And that's probably how she found it, you know what I mean? But nevertheless, it was our first experience where we were realizing, oh, this the, the podcast might be bigger than the gallery in a way, or, or at least it's coming together. And then by me, then when YouTube came around, I was filming all of the concerts we'd have. I would film segments of the open mic and we put all that out on our website and on YouTube. And I kind of thought like, I think I'm on, I think this is exciting. This is an exciting thing to mix this stuff together. But then uh, it was 2008 for season for year four, and you know these parties I was talking about that you show you're, you're hosting an event. It's, it's essentially it's a way to focus because we would do an exhibit, a full exhibit that wouldn't change for a month. We'd sign a contract with an artist for six months, we'd have their work in the gallery for six months, but that first month uh, we would celebrate the artist with a with a focused literal exhibit. It was named, it had a, a description, we had a, a program printed just for it. Um, and it also allowed you to elevate that artist and try to sell a lot of artwork. And so then you'd have a, an opening to, to open the exhibit. And that's usually when you try to get all your, your hoity toities in. And at the time, I remember like the owner of twin disc would come in and he'd buy artwork for us. And we had some of the SC Johnson people would come in and we felt very excited about this experience. Um, but what I'm trying to point out here is that a lot of times these, I'll call them parties, as I've been saying, you um sometimes in those three hours you like i joked earlier you make your rent but sometimes you have to make your rent in those three hours you know what i mean it's some of these pieces would sell for a fair amount of money and it, it's it's it wasn't like a a shop where you know oh we we sold 30 more 20 dollar books today or something like that it was kind of like okay we sold four you know we've made our rent for two months or something like that um and so there was a big focus on these exhibits, these openings. And, and around 2008, our, our fourth year of operations, and things were trending up for us. I remember having some really good artists in that I was really excited about. I was actually starting to bring artists from Chicago over. We had artists from Colorado. We, there was the most exciting thing ever is we represented an artist who uh, this guy did like these sculptures and they showed up on a 
he had to like import them to us. They showed up, this huge truck pulled up in front of our gallery and we had to have a team like unload these things. And I was like, this is so exciting. This is really cool. You know, it wasn't just like the person down the street that, that was a phenomenal artist and they just kind of walked over with their stuff. It was like, we were really kind of feeling like we were onto something. And we had this great exhibit and tons of people were there. And I remember we sold like one piece where our, our general trend was like selling five to 10. And I was like, well, that was weird. Maybe I just, maybe I really missed the boat on that one. Maybe my intuition was wrong. And then we showed, I had another artist that I was excited about and uh, we sold zero pieces. I was so embarrassed. And, you know, if we eventually would sell one or two over the next month, people would come in to see the exhibit. Because because the thing about an exhibit is back then you could at least get a newspaper article about it or you could at least get a review or something like mm -hmm. that. And all that stuff helps. Um, you know, if you could get in the newspaper, you could, you'd, you'd have a couple hundred people there. And also you're raising your brand. Every single time someone sees that name, you know, anyway, I have like a folder around here somewhere of all the different newspapers that would write about us. And it's, it's, it was, oh. it was a proud, it was a proud time. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is like artwork wasn't selling. And then we had three or four, we had a whole, a bit like seasons. I would plan 12 months of exhibits out and, um, and we were selling less and less and less and it was getting really scary and I couldn't figure it out. I kind of thought maybe I was messing up. I, if I'm being honest, I, I kind of thought maybe I was, it was another one of these experiences where I was like, what am I not seeing or what am I seeing that others are, or have I gone too far? Am I picking weird stuff? It kind of brought me back to like being in second grade and having the kids be able to read and, and me not being able to. I, I really started to doubt myself. I thought maybe I'm really, maybe this, maybe I am focusing too much on the, on the virtual stuff. You know, I thought we were showing really good art. I don't think it's an excuse to look back in hindsight and realize that at the time it was also when we were going through our massive financial crisis uh, as a nation and people simply weren't buying $3,000 pieces of artwork for their houses that they were losing around that time. And uh, it, it, I didn't even really put that together until years later when a few people kind of brought it to my attention. Maybe it's an excuse, maybe it's not. I think it's. I think there's some, some backing behind it. Um, and so at the end of that fourth year, it was getting pretty tight paying rent was getting pretty tight. And I kind of thought like, well, I could kind of keep pushing, but um, I decided to kind of just, just pull it. You know what I mean? And so we stopped the art gallery and I uh, moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin for some work. And at the time I kind of felt like, oh, but I can keep the podcast going. 716 Fine Art Podcast. I was like, this is the new thing. We don't even need a building that costs three to $4,000 a month just to have the door be open. We can, we can just pay for server space and, and, and have the shows. And so I, I moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I got a two bedroom place over on the east side and uh, set up one room as like a recording studio. And I started going to a lot of the exhibits and the art gallery events in, in Milwaukee. But I tell you, it didn't work at all. I, I think I produced four episodes because quite frankly, what I learned too was uh it was like season six of 716 find our podcast here it comes it's gonna be great and um it was a slightly different format it was a bit like 1v1 here where we were doing long form interviews with artists because i couldn't celebrate ex exhibits anymore or i couldn't really talk about this kind of mildly lifestyle element wasn't happening anymore but the reason it didn't work was because it was really hard to get guests and the reason it was hard to get guests, a lot of the streaming stuff that we do now, that what we're doing, what you and I are doing right now, wasn't around as much. Certainly, I mean, I remember when I finally did a couple, years later, I finally did some Skype episodes for a different podcast. And it was like, oh, it was such an ordeal, which is why I'm so uh, 
which is why I get a little grouchy about doing online uh, recording sometimes, even to this day. But I, I think it's also going to be a very special gift. Like we wouldn't even be able to have this conversation right now if it wasn't for this technology. So I certainly recognize that. But um, uh, what it was, was, was I would go, essentially I had business cards, 716 fine art podcast. And I think I even changed it to just the 716 podcast at that time. And uh, I had some really nice marketing and it really looked slick. But it, I was like a weirdo. I'd go to these events, exchange business cards and then be like, Will you come to my apartment for two hours so we can record? You know, like, you know, people, they don't even know you. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, maybe sometime. And you couldn't get good artists or, or interesting artists. And I realized, like, oh, this is a, a really creepy model. This is not good. <laughs> come to my apartment. Yeah, we'll record. Um, anyway, uh, so it didn't work at all. And that led me to, um, at the time, so I really wanted a podcast. I had the studio built up. And... Um, I was working at a, I was working as a designer, a UI designer at like a physical therapy company at the time. And my coworker was really into, he and I got along really well and we had a good rapport and like my little producer brain went off and I, and we would talk about technology all the time. And I thought, well, what's, what's something that how, if I'm going to make a new podcast or a different podcast, what's something that I could make that is, uh, that I don't, you know, where the content is there, right? Like where the content comes to us. And I thought, okay. I know there's a million of them, but we're going to do a tech news podcast. So we created this show called Technophiles. And it was, I used to say that if, if a news podcast is like a newspaper, we were like a magazine where we would only do maybe three or four topics and we'd do deep, deep in-depth 20 minute conversations about each topic. We'd interview people here and there. And then for the next eight years of my life, I produced Technophiles. And I'll make that very quick. I'll make that. It was a large part of my life. I think some of the YouTube stuff's still out there. Um, Technophiles is its server is down now as well. Um, but during that time, I was moving around Milwaukee a little bit. And during that time is is uh, we I was making this technology podcast, and video games are immediately adjacent to technology. And occasionally we'd have like a we had a Nintendo Wii U episode. We had a Nintendo Wii episode. We had a Nintendo 3DS episode. We had an Xbox, whatever it was, 360 episode. And we were also having like Tesla episodes and you know all these other things. We, I remember we had an episode about um, Lucasfilm purchasing, uh, Disney purchasing Lucasfilm. It was tech adjacent, but we were discussing like, uh, you know, what that meant for technology. Okay, whatever. Entertainment a little bit. I couldn't help myself. I had to do a little bit of entertainment. But around that time, um, people would come to me and say, like, well, why, why don't you just take the video game stuff and make it a whole new show? I said, okay, cool. That's cool. You know, oh, at the time, then, I had, I had elevated and I, was, I got a job working for SC Johnson as a designer. And I was working there for about four or five years. And that was, ironically, back in Racine. It was really weird to go back to Racine. Um, sometimes I'd even drive past the old gallery and I was like, hello, old friend. <laughs> um, it was, somehow I got pulled back to Racine. But working at SC Johnson was an absolute pleasure. It was one of my favorite jobs I've ever had in my entire career. Um, it was one of those jobs that was absolutely suited for me. It was, I was a designer and we would work on my department. We'd work on like the package design for off Windex, Glade. Sometimes you'd get moved around. Sometimes you were doing some scrub and bubbles, but scrub and bubbles had this weird IP thing where like, oh, I know what they were doing. They were transitioning from fantastic to scrub and bubbles. It doesn't matter. But it was the kind of job, Celeste, where you didn't have an in time, you didn't have an out time. It was not a nine to five. It was come in whenever you want, leave whenever you want, 
I had my own office. It was a very creative opening environment. Um, but don't miss a deadline and don't miss a meeting. Otherwise, do whatever the heck you want. And I just adore that model. I think it was perfect. It absolutely bred creativity for us. And by the way, I should point out that model was exclusive to the creative operations department at SC Johnson. The rest of the company ran in a very conventional format, nine to five kind of thing. Some days I'd go in for four hours. Some days I'd be there for 14 hours. You know what I mean? It was, it was, you'd work on things you cared about, even though sometimes you were just designing a mosquito for an off thing, you know, or sometimes you're doing photos of families standing really happily at picnics, but the, but the, the workflow was very enjoyable. So for me, it worked perfectly into also having a lot of downtime to do the podcasts. And so at the time I was like, well, you know, I do kind of want to grow this podcast thing. Uh, sure. Let's do, what would it be? If it's the Technophiles podcast, what's the next one? I guess it's the Technophiles games cast. And so we made a show called Technophiles games cast. And then, then after another half a year, someone came to me and said, well, I want to do a tabletop show. And I said, I love it. And I said, we're going to do a show. It's going to be called the tabletop test shop. And we did, you know, we started making that one. And then another person wanted to do a book, a science fiction book review show. And I said, okay, sci-fi science, here we go. And so we had like four shows happening and I was like, oh, this needs to be a network. I need a network name. And I was like, well, Technophiles, Technophiles Podcast. Is the first. next one was the Technophiles Gamescast because the branding was really tight. In fact, the Technophiles Gamescast was almost, almost a spinoff of podcasts. In fact, two of the people that were my four regular cast members on Technophiles also did the Gamescast. And then I would go on, I would go on just as a guest once in a while on the Gamescast. I would go on the Technophiles Gamescast every time we talked about Legend of Zelda. I didn't even know I had it in me at the time, but like I love Legend of Zelda. And every time we did the Zelda episode, I said I want to be in it. So, you know, some of those shows came and went, and uh, I needed to come up with a network name. And so it was like, well, how about the Technophiles Podcast Network? That's fine. So we ran with it. And uh, I didn't see at the time that it was technically TPN. And a lot of people would always tease me, like, what is it, Toilet Paper Network? But um, yeah, but it was fine. TPN. TPN did uh, did these shows, and some of them would only do go for a season. The tabletop one, I actually made a critical mistake with the tabletop one. The production requirements were through the roof. It was an awesome concept. We would have um, we cast we did a cast of four people. Actually, it was a cast of three regulars that loved playing tabletop games, and then we'd have a guest come in. They would literally play the game. We would film them playing the whole game. So I'd have two cameramen, and we had a camera on top looking down, so you could see the board and everything. They would play it, and then immediately after, we'd flip the set, and they would do regular mic podcasts about what they had just played with the guest. So these were like four or five hour days. We we basically we'd set up an entire production day. We'd record two episodes a day. I'd have lunch, you know, done and everything. We'd have mild amounts of craft craft service in the morning with coffees and muffins and stuff like that. We'd take a lunch break in the middle. Usually, the second guest would come in for the second half. Um, and then they would talk about it. And while they talked about the show, we would be cutting to B-roll of them literally playing the show. Super cool. It was, a, it was a production. It was a producer's dream to conceptualize. But the execution was way too much. My editors, we did, this show wasn't making money yet or anything like that, this, this tabletop test, pot, test shop. So my editors were volunteers. They were people just doing it because they loved it. But and volunteers are wonderful. Um, I'm very grateful for volunteers. Um, you know, but occasionally if, if, you know, you have, you have to expect that if, if other things become, you know, first of all, a money-making gig is going to be more important than that. So my editors were also working in the industry as editors. And there were plenty of times where they'd have to do their other stuff first. And I completely understood that. So the long story short of this tabletop test shop is that the, the product was cool. 
Um, but boy, it would take like a month to edit an episode. You know what I mean? And whereas a normal podcast, if you do it right, it takes an evening. Anyway, long story short, um, uh, that takes me to getting to know Kate, but is this, I feel like I've been talking a really long time and I think you have questions. Is there, oh, what is your next yeah. question? Oh, it was going to be just about the podcast. Just about the podcast. Okay. Well, then the I guess podcast. this leads into it. It's oh. perfect. Yeah. So Techophiles Podcast Network was working and, um, and after about four, four and a half years, about four years of working at SC Johnson, Another very, I have these weird like four year segments in my life. It was like four years at Columbia, it was four years at Harpo, four years at uh, um, doing the art gallery, four years at SC Johnson. Um, and then SC Johnson went through some hard times a few years ago. I don't know if it was very public or not, but they, um, they had to let go of, of a tremendous amount of people. And I don't know if they officially filed for bankruptcy, but they had to make some massive changes. They outsourced a lot of stuff. And this was, I don't know, maybe four years ago, <laughs> maybe about four years ago. And um, so one of the things that they had to cut back on was their entire design department. They ended up hiring a, you know, a third-party design company. Um, and there was about 20 of us, maybe a little bit less by the time we got to the end, that, um, that you know, quite frankly, got, got let go. And there were some designers that were older than me. And I think, if I may, they, they struggled after that to find work because you're, you know, it's, it's interesting in graphic design because when you come out of school, you're super hip and hot and you got all the fresh ideas, but you don't have a resume or a portfolio. So it's a little bit hard to get hired. Then you're in, in your twenties and even maybe early thirties, you're kind of in your prime because you got a healthy portfolio and you've still got your, still got your flow. Um, and you're still on, you're probably still like, you're probably still making cool stuff. Let's put it that way. Um, you're in touch with what's going on within the scene and you have good taste and all of that. Um, but some of these people that have been working there were in their fifties and you know, I, I, mean, I know they're not getting hired in some, some hip design shop but anyway I digress um so all of a sudden I was kind of without a job and it happened pretty quickly so I thought well I guess I'll move to Chicago I'll move back to Chicago and look for design work and this leads me to about two years ago maybe three years ago right around during the interim of me moving to Chicago I spent I spent a couple months I actually actually transitioning from uh, Milwaukee to Chicago I spent a couple months with my folks, I literally moved back into at the ripe old age of whatever it was, 37 or 36 or something. I went and, uh, you know what? I even, it wasn't the same room anymore. It had been turned into a, uh, a library or a rec room or something, but I was even physically actually sleeping in my old bedroom, um, while I kind of transitioned to Chicago. But during that time, I had a lot of time on my hands. I, I, I got very lucky and I was able to work for a company remotely called Scritter. And I worked as their UI designer for about a year. Um, kind of helped them make some concepts for a new app and then they were going to make another app and they went another way, but it was, that was technically, that was all just contract based as well. So I would sit at my laptop working for this company in California in my parents' house and they were very, I'm very grateful for the experience, but I had a lot of downtime. I wasn't making any podcasts. I, there was no way if I couldn't ask people to come to my apartment. I certainly couldn't ask them to come to my old bedroom in my parents' house to record an episode. And I needed something to do with my time and I hadn't acted in a year or two. I, I typically do a show. I used to do a show about once a year, you know, just to kind of keep your chops up, do some play or something. But it takes a lot of time. It's three months of rehearsals. And then if you're in a professional show, you're, you're running it for three months. You know what I mean? Um, so I thought, well, you know, I'll go, uh, I'll go back to that theater. It was the Racine Theater Guild. I'll, I'll go to the theater that I used to do stuff at 
in Racine and uh, it was close to Kenosha where I was living with my folks. I thought I'll just do a play there. And I found this play that I was very excited about and it was called um, Indoor Outdoor. And it was about a, it was so weird. The main character was a guy in his thirties, a graphic designer in his thirties who worked from home, who had a cat. And you have a cat. It was like, it was almost literally me. Now his disposition was a bit more negative. That character's disposition was a bit more negative on life than, than my disposition was at the time, which is why you're acting and you're playing a character. But boy, it was really kind of weird. And um, it was, I was excited to play the part. So I auditioned for it and I, I was lucky enough to get the, get the lead. And, um, and the woman, uh, the actor, uh, act, the actor who got the part that eventually became that character's love interest and then wife was Kate Fisher was Kate from AZP. Now, Kate and I had known each other like from 10 years prior. Um, cause we had, we had never been in a play together, but she also did a little bit of work at that theater. And we had a couple mutual friends and I was introduced to Kate at a party and she, Oh, here's a weird twist. Her now husband is the brother of my old boss, Edison Johnson. So it was weird because, you know, there's all these weird little kind of Wisconsin connections. Um, my, my boss at SCJ was awesome. He had nothing to do with the, uh, the layoffs. That was for much higher up. He was a good guy. I appreciated him very much. Um, and, and, and Kate's now husband is a wonderful guy too. So that whole family must, must be doing something right. But anyway, um, um, so Kate and I were in this play. We were like, oh my gosh, we've never acted together. And we, we were kind of friends, but it was really just more like seeing each other at parties kind of thing. You know what I mean? And uh, then one, and, and anyway, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll skip forward here. There was this, um, so the play, the cat in the play could speak to the audience, but not to the other characters in the play. And it was kind of cool. It was actually, it's a really beautiful little play, indoor, outdoor, where the the relationship that the graphic designer has with his cat ends up becoming a metaphor for marriages. Mm -hmm. So, or, or and you know, really what it was, I actually loved playing this part, even though he kind of, he wasn't the bad guy. He was the main character. He was the main male character, but his the issue that the cat had was that the cat who was a female cat would speak to the owner and she thought she was speaking to him, but the, all the owner was hearing was meow, 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 meow. You know what I mean? And so it became this really great metaphor for a, a marriage where in which the husband is a workaholic and doesn't pay attention to the wife and can't understand the wife and doesn't give her the appropriate amount of time and, and the lessons that then come from that experience. So to take this really kind of silly idea of a cat, there was no romantic implications. It was all just metaphors, you know what I mean? But it really became mm -hmm. about this empowerment of this woman, which was expressed as this cat, um, to figure out her journey and, and it wasn't, it wasn't, it was in no way, shape or form like an abusive relationship, but it was a relationship where, the, where you, where many times in the script, you're like, oh, I know what this scene is. This is the scene where the guy is distant in his marriage after five years or 10 years. And, and it's, it was a real heartbreaking and sweet part to play. But there was a there were times where this cat would monologue for 10 minutes where, where, where I wouldn't be on stage. And also Kate, the other female human, um, wouldn't be on stage. And it was kind of cute because the cat was jealous of the female human as, as animals sometimes are when there's a new relationship or something. And then, um, and if I may real quick, then the cat finds a stray cat and then she essentially cheats on the quote unquote marriage by sneaking outdoors and running around with the cat. And it was all, it was all very cool. So Kate, there were times in this production where Kate and I for three or four months would be 
backstage and we'd have 15, 20 minutes to kill. And we found ourselves starting to talk about Zelda. She was a massive Zelda fan. And so was I. And, um, after a couple months of this, there was one day, and I kind of told this story quickly on AZP on another Zelda podcast, but there was a day where, um, Kate came in and literally had, I think it was the Hyrule Historia. It was the green one. Cause we were saying, we were talking about the Gorons and she was just starting to play Breath of the Wild. And she like slapped the book down and she was like pointing out this thing. She said, look, I just learned this. The Gorons did X, Y, and Z because of blah, 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 or th their backs are made out of rock or something like that. And it clicked for me in that split second, like my producer brain, who's always hungry for new podcasts was like, I just took a risk. And I still kind of had this Technophiles podcast network entity. I was technically still making Technophiles. Um, we were doing it as Skype episodes. Those are on YouTube right now. Um, whereas the first six or seven seasons of Technophiles, it was all people sitting around a table. But then when I was living in Kenosha, I was I couldn't have personal podcasts. But the Technophiles thing was still kind of, it was going strong. But it was also because of the format change. It was starting, the, the analytics were trending down a bit. I'll be honest, by the time we hit season eight. And so I said, Kate, do you want to do another, do, do you want to do a Zelda podcast with me? And she, and, and Kate's uh, a phenomenal actor, but immediately she was very nervous about it. She was like, oh no, 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 I can't do anything like that. And I said, what are you talking about? You're an actor. Like we literally cry in front of people, you know, 600, 700 people a night for, you know, we're, we're manipulating, you know, doing these emotions. And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's something we've rehearsed. I don't think I can, I'm just, I'm too nervous. I'm too antisocial. I can't just speak on a microphone to people that are listening. I said, okay, okay, I understand. Think about it, you know, and maybe we'll try. And we kept talking, we kept talking, and there was a night, there was a night after one of the performances where we were out at kind of like a little corner local bar after one of the performances, and and um Kate's now husband was there, and the three of us were chatting a little bit about Zelda. There was another friend there anyway. Um Zelda. And uh and elevated to a point where in which all four of us were like, we got to do it. And Kate was like, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so I, I, I scooped up some of my old microphones that we were using on Technophiles that were in storage. And I, I, at the time I was still living in Kenosha and she was living in Milwaukee, actually, coincidentally. And I drove up to Milwaukee from Kenosha, past Racine, where we were in the play. And uh, it was Kenosha, Racine, Milwaukee, if you're going north in Wisconsin. And we recorded our first episode. It was just one. And it's, it is the first episode of another Zelda podcast. We were like in her closet. We had, she had like a walk-in closet that we recorded. And we ended up not recording there anymore because it was a little echoey. Um, and I just said, we're going to start real simple. Let's just do our top three Zeldas. You know what I mean? And let's just figure out what this show is. We'll figure out what our voice is. We'll figure out what it means. You can feel it out. And I said, and I tell you what, we'll call this an episode zero. If we don't like it, this one will never come out. And we'll just, we'll try something else. And I was really trying to support her. I wasn't trying to manipulate her into recording or anything. It was more like, well, if, if she's nervous, what's the best way to do this? And uh, we ended up really enjoying it. And we put it out and we set up a time to record three weeks later. So I drove back up to Milwaukee and we recorded episode two and three. And I was really hoarse for those episodes because I was just, I, ha I had this stint where TC DeWitt, who's been on uh, a couple episodes now and, and coincidentally a studio demands it um, host, he had me on as a guest on two shows that he was doing. And I was also, I had guest spoke on like four podcasts in, in one day. And I got super hoarse, as you can tell, it's not, it's not like I don't talk on podcasts <laughs> as I roll my eyes here, as I'm talking way too much. Um, 
And so I was super- Of course, for that episode, I was really nervous for both of them. And I went in there sounding like a frog and we recorded, we tried out, like, we were like, okay, what should it be? Forest Dungeons. Okay, yeah, we can try the other ones later. And then I think we did like a, a top, maybe we did do a top 10 or something. Anyway, that was all technically still under the TPN brand. I was taking those episodes and putting them on the, the, the TPN website, which doesn't even exist anymore. And if you look closely at the thumbnails of those first 10 episodes or so in season one, to this day, they still have the TPN logo on them, not a 6.5 logo, like embedded into the metadata. And um, so I, at this time, you know, by the time we were hitting episode four and five of another Zelda podcast, I had successfully transitioned to Chicago, which means every time we recorded, I would drive about two hours north to meet Kate at her house because I wanted to make it as easy as possible for her. Um, and I'd show up on a Saturday and we would record three episodes in a day. We'd record, it was a little bit like that old tabletop test shop model where we'd record two episodes. We'd have a quick, maybe a quick lunch break or donut break or whatever it was. Cause sometimes you don't want to eat too much on a show before a show. And, um, and then I'd leave by two and then drive back to Chicago. Anyway, um, the, we, we, I was running analytics for technophiles. I'd been doing it for many seasons for technophiles. So I was using, I think I was using PodTrack, P-O-D-T-R-A-C.com. I highly recommend them. They're great. We still use it. Six, five uses them to this day. Um, and uh, so I was running the analytics on another Zelda podcast. Oh, by the way, we also decided to call it another Zelda podcast because when we searched around, there were like eight or nine Zelda podcasts already on iTunes. And I thought, you know what? We will take the content seriously, but I don't, we're not going to be a comedy show at all. But I don't want to take this too seriously because you can't as a Zelda fan. You know what I mean? Um, you have to kind of know that you're not going to know some things, you know? And, uh, and, and I said, if we, if we go in as experts, I think that's the wrong take here. I think we go in as fans because that's what we are. And, um, and we can even learn along as we go. So we thought, well, we'll set the tone right off the bat without being too cutesy. It's a little cutesy. But without being too cutesy, we'll call it another Zelda podcast because that's what's going to happen. And the producer in me really liked that title because it had the word podcast in it and it had the word Zelda in it, which means it was very searchable. You know, um, if we if we called it like the Hyrule Historia Minute or something, you know, maybe if people searched Hyrule, they'd get it. But if people literally type into Google Zelda and podcast, hopefully we'd pop up. And I believe that's that was kind of the case with you, actually, in your experience. Mm-hmm. So that brought us to another Zelda podcast. So that's how we did the show. And uh, so for two seasons, it was like that. Um, it was it was an absolute blast. Every every six weeks, I would drive up to Milwaukee, and uh, Kate and I would record three episodes. Sometimes it got a little bit, you know. Sometimes we'd go to a convention or something. It would change the model a little bit, but that was the model. And that brings us to another Zelda podcast. And we've had a very interesting season three. Um, I don't want to get into that too much right now, but I will say that. Season three has brought in a lot of new voices for us, uh, specifically Celeste, you've, you've come into play. And we had, what it was is we had these blog writers come in and, and we were able to introduce them as voices too. And so the show's really become something special for me. Oh, 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 that was, my, that was the end of my story was that um, I was running analytics on Technophiles under the TPN servers. And literally the first 10 episodes of another podcast were on the Technophile servers. It was, it was, www.technophiles.com slash shows slash another Zelda podcast. That's like where the URL led to. Um, and as that was happening, um, Technophiles was, was kind of trending down. It was doing fine. But even those first four or five episodes of another Zelda podcast shot, shot past the listenership that Technophiles was getting at that point. 
uh, Technophiles seasons before had had higher listenership, but it was kind of sunsetting itself, let's be honest. I remember looking at it and thinking like, man, you know, AZP was supposed to be this kind of little side project for the Technophiles brand. But I'll be, I, uh, I think this is the show. I think this is what we do. I think this is the main show. It's not Technophiles anymore. So we finished up that final season of Technophiles and... I remember thinking like, wow, we were, I think we really got something here with another Zelda podcast. Immediately, we started getting listener feedback and immediately we saw that the analytics were going up. And I was really pleased with that. I never would have guessed that that would have been the one that really, really clicked 10 years before. Even though really, if I look at, if I'm being honest, like that DNA was inside me already with that Technophiles games casting from eight years before. Um, um, and so that's what brought the transition, which might lead to, I think, what might be close to your next question. I think your next question might be something about 6.5 Media. Is that right? Yeah. Do you want to tell us about that and, and, and your goals for 6.5 Media? Sure. Absolutely. Well, what happened then was I thought, okay, well, TPN isn't the right branding anymore. And this is kind of a new phase anyway. All the other shows that were on the Technophiles Podcast Network had finished up their seasons. And, you know, me moving out of Milwaukee, um, didn't sever those relationships, but they weren't working models anymore. You know what I mean? We couldn't be really making those shows anymore. And and to that, to, with that said, I'm I'm a, I don't mind admitting it. I'm a little old school with my shows. I like I like the production teams to be near each other. You know, I like them to be in the same room with each other. I think there's a special magic that happens uh, when that happens. I think it's really special to also be able to do um, online stuff as well. I think there's a lot of shows out there that wouldn't even be able to happen if it wasn't for the online technology. And I think that's really, really special, beautiful. But, you know, so when I left Milwaukee and, and uh, the people that were making the other shows for me, with me, uh, kind of went their ways as well. So we're all still Instagram friends. You know, you kind of check their life out. I know one of them um, became, a, became a streamer and she's streaming quite well right now. But anyway... Uh, I said, okay, well, I think this is a new thing then. I think it's a new thing. And I, I, so I came up with a new company name. It was 6.5 Media. And then that, that became, um, I pulled those early episodes of, tech of AZP and re-uploaded them to 6.5. Had to write some new XML and, um, and therein started the 6.5 journey. We knew that we'd probably want to make more shows with 6.5. I liked that 6.5 was kind of a, pardon me, just kind of a generic name doesn't really mean anything more just something that rolls off the tongue um the, the partner that i had when we started six five i was six i'm six four and she was like five two and uh so there was a little bit of a joke that the rest of the six and the five came from but it was really just more of just a name and uh um slowly we, we tried we tried to make a tea show for a little while there's only about seven episodes it was like a tea testing tea tasting episode uh, show um, and then, and then AZP was rising, rising, rising. And, um, I don't really remember. Oh, I know what it was. Yes. Yes. So six, five, um, after one season of another Zelda podcast, I started having some of my friends come to me and say like, Hey, you know, we're kind of interested in what's going on. Um, you know, could we do shows with you or a few people? I reached out the table, the, the top hat balloon show guys. I, they live in Madison and I think they're just hysterically funny and brilliant weirdos. And um, I, uh, I actually reached out to them because when, when I was first designing 6.5, I actually was designing it more as a video production company. Oh my gosh, that's weird. That's kind of what Visionary Entertainment was. But, um, but what I mean is I was really trying to f make content that could live. Because at the time, this is like when Pluto was coming out and this is when 
Hulu was starting to get their rates. And an ad impression for an audio show was cents, you know, a couple cents to the, to the dollar or whatever, but you could get almost $20 on a, if, if someone watched your content on a big screen, the return on your um, pro promos was much higher, is still to this day much higher. Um, if you're streaming it through your Apple TV up on a TV, an ad that happens on YouTube or whatever, um, or Pluto or whatever, if it's happening through, your, if it's going onto a big screen, they pay more for that than if it's not even on your phone or even if wow. it's streamed on your browser. And certainly more than if you're just listening to it on a podcast. And so I thought, oh, this is interesting. This is this is the future. And I think I do think it still might be, um, and it certainly is. Um, so we really thought, oh, we're going to make a bunch of video shows, and that's why I reached out to the Top Hat guys. And then um, I actually reached out to uh, Top Hat Balloon Show is a comedy sketch show. They did one season for me so far. We signed them for a one season contract with an option to renew. Um, I asked them to do 44 episodes in one year, which, which is asking a lot. Um, when you, and, and by the way, these sketches that, that, the, that, that Max and uh, Olmstead was kind of the, the guy who headed the whole thing up, um, the episodes that they would make were full short films. They would be you know, full like five minute short films. Some of them, the production value was really high. And some of the, the production value was a little bit more, uh, you know, quick and dirty, which was part of the charm. So then when that one was working, and that one did very well in the beginning, um, I then reached out to my old friend, T.C. DeWitt. He was living and is living in California as a screenwriter. And I said, hey, you know, I'd really like you to do a video series for 6.5. And he, he had the concept that he was going to do a video show where he's talking to a webcam. I think it was going to be called steal this idea or something like that. And he was going to pitch ideas for films or sequels as if almost as a character, like he was a weird character, like talking to his webcam and he's going to pitch these ideas and, and all of that. And, and that show might still come to be honestly, even though six or studio demands is doing so well right now that I don't know if TC is going to have the time for it. But anyway, he said, yeah, yeah, that's cool. I like this. Like, you know, he kind of came to me with the pitch or the idea of the video show. But then um, a few months in, we kind of took this pivot and he said, you know what, I've got this other guy and we're both, we, we have these conversations all the time where, we're, where we find ourselves trying to um, come up with impossible asks um, for, like, for film sequels and stuff. And he goes, I'd like to do a, an audio podcast, kind of in the vein of another Zelda podcast, where it's about, um, um, you know, we will play we will play ourselves, but we will have this fictional studio that demands these crazy ideas. Uh, crazy ideas being like what, what you and I, Celeste, might call like really bad film ideas. And we'll try to see if we can use our screenwriting skills in an hour to pitch whatever that would be. And I love the idea so much that um, I said, I love it, that's cool. Um, let's start it as an audio show because I, I knew we couldn't afford to have a bunch of cameras on these guys or we couldn't really afford a studio yet. You know, the Top Hat guys, they were kind of shooting outside they were shooting in their house they they had a couple cameras already because we were we were dirt poor. we didn't really have any money yet uh, for six five you know what i mean um another zelda podcast at the time i was financing just off just off my own income <laughs> and um um and i said well it started as an audio show and i think that was the turning point for six five what i had originally envisioned to be more of a short form video format production company 
really went back to its roots and, and went back to being a, a podcast company and, um, and studios now in its, so uh, the top Hat balloon guys did their 44 episodes and I, I have to apologize to them publicly because I totally burned them out. I asked them to do way too, it was a bad, it was a bad rap. I shouldn't have asked for 44 episodes. So um, I can't wait for a season two for the top Hat balloon show, but I told them, you know, one of them, Max got married after that show. And I said, hey, I said, Hey, take your time. You do, you know, this stuff's going to be here forever. We're going to have this relationship forever. Um, you take as many years as you need and, uh, and, and come back to me when you want to do a season two and, and we'll just, we'll just go again. I love it. Um, admittedly, we are trending more towards audio shows these days, but the top Hat guys are so talented that I, you know, I'd, I'd still be happy to do it. One time over dinner, Max and I optioned a few audio shows that maybe the top Hat guys could do. What was the one? It was almost a play on Would You Rather or something like that. But anyway, um, um, and, and since a little behind the scenes, I've never talked about this. Uh, Max has since secretly sent me a season two, episode one spec edit that he did of a oh skit. Oh, God. I think he was playing around in his basement one night and did a really, really funny bit about a guy that was inventing a new kind of toilet or something. And uh, there wasn't any real toilet humor. It was just a real funny. It was just a funny bit. And, um, and it was hysterical, but uh, I'm not going to rush them. They can come to me uh, to make more, more, more stuff. And I hope, I hope that happens sooner rather than later, but you know, whenever they feel ready again. But the studio stuff is going on. And so that leads us to, that's what 6.5 is now. I think 6.5 is, it, it, it naturally pivoted, if I may, by TC wanting to do this audio show instead of this video show. And I'm grateful for it because that's allowed us to now pursue the Bruthers in Law guys, um, Two gentlemen over in is it not exactly Detroit, but they kind of live in Detroit. I think. Oh, Isn't that right? I know Michigan. Michigan. Sure. We'll just say Michigan. Um, and uh, Ryan Kuhn is coincidentally one of our blog writers at EZP, and he approached me saying he wanted to make a show. And you know, the, what I've learned, the lesson I've learned over the last fifteen years, is keep your overhead microscopic. It's you lose the game with overhead. And when I was doing that art gallery where it was literally costing three or $4,000 just to be able to open the door every month, you got to sell a lot of artwork to afford that before you can even start paying people. You know what I mean? That's like, that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of overhead. Um, uh, a podcast where you have to, um, let's say you make a show a little bit like that tabletop one, if where you theoretically need a studio every episode and, and you know, tons of equipment and stuff like that at least right now, that's, um, that's not part of the model. Um, I work, I work, six, I, I work out of my house. This is where I live now. This is my desk. Um, we have almost no overhead. Our overhead at this point is, I mean, we do, we have a couple hundred dollars of overhead a month and that's basically the websites and the servers and the, we have some ad, you know, we have an ad budget now for all the shows and stuff like that. But, um, but I think that that's, what's enabling us to kind of make a lot of these new shows. And so that's where six is at right now. And um, to, if you're, if to, to truly answer your question about where do I expect it to go, another thing I learned with technophiles was you don't want to grow too fast. Um, it's easy. I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm a creative person as we explored in the beginning of this episode. I can't believe I took that dive, even though I'm happy I did. Um, um, but uh, uh, you know, the big lesson I learned with technophiles is if you expand quicker than your resources can allow, you'll, you'll sink that ship or things won't stay. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? You can, uh, if you, if you, if you can plant a plant, but if you can't bring enough water to it every day, that plant's not going to, 
maintain. And so I've, I've actually now in the last half a year or so, I, I get approached often by people um, saying they would are interested in doing shows with six, five. And I'm really flattered when that happens. And I, I really hope that someday we have the infrastructure where I can say yes to everybody that comes to me. That is kind of technically the plan. Um, um, the plan is that there's an automation to some of this that that people can actually almost use it as a service, as a as a, as a website service to uh, do this. And there's plenty of those out there. There's like the Podbeans and the and the Libsyns or whatever they are out there. I'm not trying to emulate that model. I'm really what I'm focused on is really being more of a production company at this point and just trying to make quality shows. Um, if there's a model in the future of growth where we go into a space where it could be more of a service, I think that's awesome. Um, there's a lot of thing. And so, so that was the big lesson I learned. So where does six, five go? We have three new shows coming out this next year. And, and I've had to call it, I've had to say no to some people, um, for that, for, you know, to say like, we to, as a service to you and to me, we can't take more yet because I don't, with the, we have this phenomenal crew, Celeste, of, of honestly volunteers that are volunteering for another Zelda podcast right now. And we, I think we have a really strong family in that experience. But as a company, it's pretty, it's pretty bare bones. It's at this point, it, you know, it was, it's, I'm really kind of grassrooting this one. It's, it's me doing it. And uh, I remember, so we have a new show coming out called Turn by Turn. And uh, Daniel is the, is the main host of that, sh that show. And um, he's, he's tweeted AZP a few times. And he sought us out. And I remember on our first meeting that we had, it was maybe four or five months ago, he kind of asked me, he was like, so what is 6-5? Is it, do you like have employees? <laughs> and I was like, not right now, Daniel, not right now. <laughs> so this is, a, this, is, this is the best passion project I've ever done in my entire life. Um, and it's the one that's working uh, the best, which is really exciting, which is really interesting. I'm, I'm I'm growing the company in a very different way than I've done other projects, taking it slow, trying to keep the quality up. And um, I, I have a job right now that does take a lot of time out of the day, but I, but I have a girlfriend who's tremendously supportive and understanding. And, and she's also very, fairly busy with her job. We literally have our desks next to each other. Now I'm talking to you on a camera and her desk is just on the other side of this camera. So that even when we're working, we can kind of still be in the, in each other's space. She's not there now. She's actually being very polite and giving me some privacy for this episode. Um, she's working from the, the couch right now. But um, uh, I'm very grateful for that for that situation and that relationship for for someone for her to uh, to understand that when I come home from work, that there's four or five hours of of, of six five that needs to happen and. And uh, in other parts of my life and other relationships in my life in the past 20 years, sometimes it's hard to have a partner that truly understands that. Because the tricky thing about being your own boss yeah. is that you even have this internal struggle always of like, well, maybe I can do that one task tomorrow. You know, you almost have to have response. You have to be your own boss and, and, and have that responsibility of completing certain tasks. And that can be a challenge sometimes. That can be a true challenge. Um, if I may get really personal for a second, my sister, I have two adorable nieces who live up in Wisconsin. And my sister um, was really, really busy this month and wasn't able to tell me that um, my, one of my nieces' birthdays will be celebrated this Saturday as of the recording of this episode in two days. And I kind of work on a two-week cycle. I'm always almost about two weeks out scheduled out. You know what I mean? My calendar's full for two weeks. And it's usually if you want to schedule mm -hmm. something with me, it's got to be more than that out. Um, which I think is pretty normal for people who, who are working a lot. Um, 
so now I have to. So, so the, the producer in me had to make, you know, I, I could, I, it was a tough decision, tough decision to say like, you know what, I can't go to my niece's party or can I, as a producer, find a way around it? But the lesson I've learned over the last 10 years, 10, 15 years is, I think maybe in the past I would try to justify the birthday and go to the birthday and say, well, X, Y, and Z is just going to be late. And, and sometimes, sometimes it can happen by accident. It doesn't happen often. But, um, but, but now like, what the journey is, what I love so much about six, five is the journey is okay. Cool. I mean, you know that I use Asana like a madman and I use Instagant and I have Gantt charts and I've, spreadsheets that help me automate a lot of this stuff and program this stuff. So now what it is, is I have these, these building blocks of schedule that I can now say, okay, if I have to give five hours to Saturday for a personal thing, how can I move and slide things? And, and this thing that's not due till Wednesday, if I push it forward and push, get this other thing done literally tomorrow, as I'm speaking very personally right now, if I execute a certain few things by tomorrow now and, and using a flow chart and using a schedule program to help me visualize that, um, cause I certainly can't do it with, if I write it down, I have to like literally see blocks on calendars and blocks on timelines. Um, yeah, make it work. so, so, you know, it was stressful to have to say, to be able to say yes to my, to my sister with this, this last minute call. Um, and, and I have to say that my sister is also very supportive of this kind of podcast journey. And if I honestly said to her, I really can't do it. She would have said, of course, I understand, you know, and, and Quinn will understand too. We'll talk to her about it. Uh, Quinn and Kira, my nieces, who actually appeared on one another Zelda yeah. podcast. Episode. I think we got a YouTube video out there too, where we did some unboxing. They're adorable. I love them so much. Um, um, I'll be able to make it work. But like, that's the stress. And if, you know, I've had relationships in the past 20 years where maybe your partner doesn't understand that um, dinner can't be an hour and a half long tonight or something like that. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Or mm -hmm. it can't be, you know, you can't watch, you can't binge those five episodes of community as much as you want to, um, cause you got to work. It's funny. Sometimes people ask me in the last two years, people ask me like, Oh, what shows are you watching right now? And I'm like, I don't even, I don't even watch T I don't even know what shows are out there. Like I squeeze in the Mandalorian, I squeezed in WandaVision, but, um, but I'm not watching anything. And part of this, I'm also not playing much either. I, I, I come home from my, my day job, so to speak, which sometimes can take 10 hours out of my day. Sometimes it can be a long one. Um, I'm up at six in the morning and I go to work and then I come back and uh, I'll usually, I'll give myself about with a lot of times you and I text each other in the morning. Cause I know you have to be to work really early too. Um, and I'll give myself about a half an hour to play any game I want or, or watch some YouTube videos or something. I actually, there's a lot of, if you know, most of the content I'm consuming these days are YouTube channels. I have to be honest. There's a lot of them that I really like. I really like practical engineering. There's three or four, like I was saying, these theme park uh, YouTube video, YouTube channels I watch. I dip into new rock stars once in a while. I don't, I don't know. I do subscribe, but I mean, sometimes that stuff gets a little, sometimes I don't want spoilers, you know, so I don't watch all of their stuff. Um, some video game ones that I really enjoy. I digress. Um, after that, after, you know, 6.30 hits, I come over here and a lot of times the microphone's still working anyway. And then, and you just keep going, you just keep cranking. But that's mm -hmm. the thing is that I love it so much that I don't, it's easy. I don't mind playing the next level of Mario versus Rabbids as much as I love that game. If I get to come here and and play the make a podcast game, that's that's way more fun. You know what I mean? For me. Yeah. It's a little bit like it's a little bit like going back to those roller coaster tycoon games a little bit where it's, it's I, I really love building systems and building logic and and and, and finding art in that and, and and creating some art, you know. 
And podcasts are weird that way because we're not we're not making high art in any stretch or form, way way shape or form. The the, t- the top hat guys were the closest thing to that. They a few of their episodes I think are literally art, um, and and they're poignant and interesting and they make you think. But um, I guess I'll stop there. I, I'm I don't have I have a hard time. Uh, uh, stop, stop stopping the talk on this. No, this was this was absolutely fascinating, David. I learned so much about you and, and your journey. And I think I think people who are fans of the different six five shows and fans of yours are really going to appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope so. I, I love doing it. And that's really what it's turned into is now, you know, my favorite shows growing up were like Mr. Rogers, Bill Nine Science Guy, um, Mr. Wizard. I adore those kinds of shows. This Rogers stuff I love because you always go to the factories and get to see all the factory yeah. work. And, and obviously he had a pretty, pretty dang good attitude too. Um, Bill Knight had his own thing going on that was very inspiring. But, and Mr. Wizard really got me. That, that was an old one. Um, but if there's if there if there's anything I can do with my life that I would be tremendously proud of, uh, like making art or something like that, which I used to be used to make some art that will. David, it kind of started cutting you off a little bit. Oh, did the internet cut out? Not the internet, the the audio. It got a little garbled for a little bit. What was I talking about? Or where did you go? I guess I was was really inspired by my favorite shows growing up were Three to One Contact, um, uh, Mr. Rogers, Donut Science Guy, Mr. Wizard. To this day, even those are like the YouTube channels I really like to watch. I just really like to learn things. But, um, but I remember th- those guys were like my heroes. They still are my heroes. And um, I, I would never be so bold to, to pretend that I could be anybody else's hero. And that's not the goal. But if there's any, what these shows have become, and what even another Zelda podcast has become for me, is we're talking about Zelda and we're celebrating a game that I can really get behind and support for a lot of reasons. The puzzles, the adventure, the storytelling, um, all things considered, Zelda games gener- generally celebrate positive attitudes and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, very rarely are you running around, you're never running around in the Zelda game and shooting people's eyeballs out of their skulls, something like that, which I have no problem with. There's, there's a kind of place for that too. But, <laughs> um, um, but I think they kind of represent, for the reason I've always loved Zelda games is because they, they do kind of line up with this these ways that I like to explore the world, experience the world. And the thing that's really touched me about another Zelda podcast specifically, and I hope all the six five shows end up doing this, is how much right back to us saying, you know, it's almost like Zelda becomes the springboard for these relationships that you start building with the listeners and the viewers. And as someone who, you know, I struggled with dyslexia and you know, I always hesitate to say the ADD thing. I was technically diagnosed with ADHD, but shortly after I was diagnosed is when like a massive ADD craze happened. And every time you turn around, every single kid in the world was getting a pill shoved down their throat. Mm-hmm. And I got about that. That was, that was for a good decade. It was like that. It might still be to some degree. I hope it's not. Um, I'm not into that at all. That idea of just turning all our kids into zombies. I'm not against medication. I think there's times where it can work, but I think every person has to really read themselves and try to figure out what works for them. But, um, and then, uh, I didn't really talk about this in this episode, but I, when I when I was in my early 20s, I really struggled with a tremendous amount of anxiety. And I would have panic attacks. And uh, for a couple of years, I was too scared to even like ride in a car. It was real weird stuff. 
I was interested in a movie theater. Um, and, so, and so you have to find ways to get through that. You know what I mean? And I chose the way, I chose ways, I chose ways to, um, you can technically take some medication for that. I also support that. My journey was, could I do um, behavioral things that I can do, patterns that I can do? And one thing that really helped with the cars was running GPS. I would just constantly run GPS and you could always see your endpoint. And if you can see your endpoint, you don't need to panic. You know, that's a good, that's a good philosophy right there. I was a passenger in a car, Metroid Fusion Zero or Metroid Zero Mission got me through a lot of panic attacks. So I was Zero Mission, if I was a passenger in a car, because instead of because panic attack, it's exponential. It's like, oh, I'm scared. I'm more scared. More scared. More scared. And you can't, you think a lot to come down. It takes heavy breathing, you know, you're carefully breathing, all this kind of stuff. So we've had people contact us. Experience panic attacks. My favorite, one of my favorite reviews ever was this gal, like in Germany, who was struggling with anxiety and panic attacks. And then she would listen to our show while she walked around her town in the mornings, and it would help her calm down. And that just touched my heart in a in a really, really deep way. And we've had many comments like that, and I think that's really special. And so, if Zelda can be an app, we're also celebrating game design. I'm celebrating mm -hmm. computer, celebrating creativity. Celebrating community, I'm celebrating support, and that's what I'm trying to do. Really, with all the six five shows, you know what I mean. Studio demands to celebrating creativity and screenwriting and, and positive mm -hmm. creation, all that kind of stuff. You know, creating art and creating things. Um, and I'll, I'll I'll end there. I think because I think we're a little over our time. <laughs> well, the, to wrap it up, where can people find you and your websites? Um, well, you know, the big the big fun one is notizeldepodcast.com. That's our main show. Don't go to us. 65.media is our website. Don't go there. It's hardly a website. It's like a logo. It'll be something someday. Um, right now, it's a means for the shows. The shows log in with a password to see some of their analytics. That's really, it's really just a delivery tool at this point. So 65.media exists, but it's not a thing. Podcast.com. All of the shows have their own websites. So there's also studiodemands.com, topdecalloonshow.com. I sometimes scrape out the the out of the title. And then we have two new shows that are, in, that are coming out just in a matter of weeks. Um, a Broad's Way Through Broadway. Allison Chickerel, who owns the theater up in, up in Milwaukee, actually, um, is doing a show where she's going to be going through and talking about Broadway shows. I mean, it's, a lot of this stuff is just extensions of my interest in personality, I have to be honest, which is, which is what it should be if I want to produce them, when I have, if I want to have a passionate experience with it. You know, um, Eventually, we'll probably reach out to other I know there was a, a gentleman who kind of pitched a baseball podcast to me, and I don't know anything about baseball. He's a really good guy. And I'm sure we find a way to to make it work uh, in, in the future. Maybe. That's something that happens a year from now. But anyway, for now, these are all kind of extensions of things that I'm particularly interested in. Um, we also have turnbyturn.com. Uh, Turn by Turn is a kind of a JRPG uh, podcast that's coming out. By, uh, Daniel's doing it. And... Um, that's it. It's all those things. I don't know. Once you get to the websites, you can go to our Twitters and Instagrams. Personally, if people want to follow me personally, on Twitter, I'm at Raptor Paint. I tweet maybe once every two weeks. Um, and then on Instagram, I'm at Raptor Paint as well. And I, I put videos up of, of like the projects I'm working on in my personal life a little bit more there. Sometimes I'll, I'll dip in with a little bit of behind the scenes AZP on my Instagram. And that's always a lot of fun. Yeah, I love that. Well, David, thank you so much for making time for this and for telling us so much about yourself, your projects, your endeavors, your, your philosophies, everything.
I didn't realize we. I didn't realize that the dam was going to burst there right in the beginning. I was just going to go in deep, but I'm I'm really happy it happened. I love it. Thank you so much, David. I comfortable. I feel so comfortable with you, Celeste. So thank you so much. I think you're doing a great job with this oh, show. Thank you. A great job with another Zelda podcast. And to anyone who's listening to this, um, I'm very excited because in season four of AZP, you're coming on as a producer for another Zelda podcast. And I think we're going to really create, we already have a lot of great ideas for season four. Uh, Celeste, I'm speaking to you, but I'm kind of speaking to the listeners right now. And I, I, I've never been more excited to make a podcast than season four for another Zelda podcast. I think we got a lot of great things going on and it's going to be a really fulfilling year. It really will be. I have some, I have some weight on my shoulders. <laughs> what? No, not at all. Not at all. Once we get it rolling, once we get it rolling, you'll see it's a, it, it feeds you. It doesn't take from you. It feeds you. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm so excited. Well, David, thank you so much for this, for collaborating. The, the worlds have collided. AZP, I know, I know. Rush Games. And listeners, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, bossrushgames.com. Until next time, see you later. Bye, guys.